Court of Notions is brought to you by Face to Face Games, where you can now pre-order Dragon's Maze singles, boxes, fat packs, and more. Check out facetofacegames.com for low prices on all your Dragon's Maze pre-order needs. Everyone's like, how does your aggro deck beat Dragtusk? And it's like, Dragtusk wasn't particularly good. I mean, like, flying is an ability. I don't know. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm your host, Chris. With me tonight, just two of the regular hosts. First of all, it's Will. That's two in a row, like Nick's. Okay. And, of course, we have Travis. Hello. Joining us this week, we have one of the most passionate voices you're going to hear speaking about magic ever. Former R&D member, soon-to-be Pro Tour champion, I'm sure, and great magic writer in his own right. We have Zach Hill with us. How are you doing, Zach? I'm doing fantastic. I mean, after you talked me up in that introduction, I'm trying to go <laughs> I've been told I tend to get a little flowery there, so I, I'm trying to develop that reputation, you know, make people feel good. <laughs> hey, man, He's auditioning for politics. <laughs> I respect that. I work with Rich Hagen on a regular basis, whom I love, but uh, if, if you're trying to outflower the master himself, you've got a ways to go. <laughs> well... I mean, I'd be lying if I said I don't want to do a round in the booth with him. <laughs> I don't know if the viewers could handle the puns. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You, him, and LSD, I don't think we'd have a broadcast. It would just be kind <laughs> uh, Yeah, I've, my set reviews are more puns per minute than LSV. That's my the tagline for Them's fighting words. <laughs> you understand that, right? <laughs> I do. It's a challenge. It's fine. It's all good. Awesome. So... Uh, it's it's great to have you on the show. I mean, you've uh, and you weren't with R and D for the length of time of people like Mark Rosewater, of course. But you you had a major impact in terms of on, of the game. And one of the biggest things that people will remember you for is the fact that clearly you hate blue uh, because it's on the internet. And well, I, I know I, I don't think it's blue. Like if you read the internet, I mean, there's a lot of people that were asking. We want to ask Zach. Zach, why do you hate magic, and why were you trying to destroy it? Yeah, yeah uh, really. That's really what my goal is. I wanted to sabotage my own bonus uh, and my <laughs> own career and legacy by making the game worse. You can quote me on that, actually. I'm sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was the whole article about Cavern of Souls, which set every single control player on the planet up in arms. Of course. Good and about time. The whole was, of course, the most played. You know, Esper Control is the most played deck at the. Uh, you know, return to Ravnica's standard pro tour. I mean, it's one of those things that, it, you know, like, magic players are very opinionated. You know, magic players are very smart people, very good people. You know, I mean, I, I devoted three years of my life to making magic. I've devoted two-thirds of my life to playing it. But there are some times where you just have to say, all right, collective consciousness, I disagree with you. And uh, I think time has panned out, and Cavern of Souls, I think, has been a very healthy, good thing for the standard format. So... 
You may either agree or disagree, but uh, you know I respect people's opinions. But I, I think that uh, you know it's not as though there are no controlled bets being played in formats where Cavern is legal. I just think it's a powerful countervailing force. And I think what all it did really is just change the way that counter control decks had to play by right. not relying so much on being able to counter everything and sort of diversify their answers. Yeah, well, I mean, and like if you look like the first format where Cabin of Souls was legal uh, was it, it the first major tournament was at Pro Tour uh, Barcelona, right? Pro Tour Edison Restored, and the deck that won contained between main deck and sideboard four copies of Dissipate. I mean, and, you know, it, it's, 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 yeah. and yet Tavern was extraordinarily highly played in that format, so much that, you know, there was highly controversial rulings around how Tavern works. But, I mean, it just goes to show, like, yes, is Tavern good against counterspells? Well, of course it is. Is it going to push control decks out of the format? Of course not. And, and, you know, I like to cultivate a reputation for myself, but I don't hate control decks. I certainly don't hate blue. I mean, if you look at that, uh, how I've played Magic since I've got out, I had a pretty high-profile modern deck that played a ton of cryptic commands. But the, the thing about Magic design and really game design, you have to understand, Magic's history airs it towards the side of raw resource advantage being an extraordinarily powerful, very good thing. And designers in R&D in, in particular have to do a ton of work balancing the game against the inherent power of raw resource advantage in the game engine. And in order to do that, you have to put some tools in against the most efficient method of raw resource exchange, which is direct counter magic. Because direct counter magic doesn't care about the text on cards. So it just means you have to work a little bit harder to mitigate that force just sort of more inherently powerful in the game. So rest assured, Internet, I have no vendetta against blue. I play blue more than any other color. It's just it's sort of a game design principle. Yeah, it sounds like we need to put Cavern of Souls in M14 now. Oh, <laughs> I, I need to become more popular by doing that. Exactly. So what you're saying is that, that people are wrong on the internet? Yeah, that's really shocking. Um, you know, and I don't want to be one of these people. Like, I don't think you're, I, I think people, by and large, have very reasonable opinions. I respect the passion and drive that people have for the game of Magic, and I take it very seriously when people say, like, hey, man, like, you know, I really love this game, and I think that you're making a bad decision. So I don't want to trivialize people's feelings and people's opinions. I just want everyone to understand, like, Magic R&D is full of extraordinarily smart people that are very, very good at Magic. You know, every developer during the time that I worked there, including myself, had a Pro Tour Top 8 at least. Uh, you know, Dave Humphries is in the Hall of Fame. Eric Lauer might be the greatest deck builder of all time. And these are people that know a lot about magic and care a lot about magic and are just as passionate, if not more so, about magic than all of our fans. So we're not going to yeah. do anything, you know, reckless and irresponsible that's going to lead to the demise of the game. And if you look at how many things that people have said, oh, this is going to kill magic, versus how many things have actually killed magic, I, <laughs> you know, I think magic's <laughs> record pans out. Yeah, at this point, I magic mean, is Jason Voorhees. <laughs> Interrupt the, the lack of interrupts was going to kill magic. Oh, uh, damage prevention windows. Losing the stack, taking damage off the stack, flip cards, split cards. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you you mentioned uh, R and D and how everybody in there has a has a pro tour top eight or did. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can't. I know you you're, you what you can talk about from the FFL is limited, but um, you might be able to answer this. 
who was normally on the top of the leaderboard? Like, who wins the most? Uh, I'm not going to say that I don't win the most. Uh, <laughs> 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 like I said, the, the composition's a little different now. We have Sam Stoddard now and Tom Lapelli's back. So, uh, you know, they're both very good players. Uh, also, they, they, they don't have pros or top eight, so my statistic no longer holds. But for a couple of years, it definitely did. Uh, I mean, Billy Moreno typically comes up with the most innovative decks, uh, many of which are very good. Uh, I tend to be, you know, the guy that builds mid-range strategies and kind of be a little bit more conservative but a lot more consistent, kind of the things I'm good at in real life. Uh, Eric Lauer is still as, you know, an absolute... Still the mad genius? Yeah, he is still the mad genius. And then Dave Humphreys builds the best decks that look so bad. (laughs) Dave was just, like, routinely, like, 4-0-ing our tournaments with just the worst-looking mono-white weenie decks. With, with just, like, like one dub-dub, three-three, enter the battlefield, pick up a permanent. Dave played that in, like, 14 different decks. We were just like, all of the cards are terrible, and he was just cleaning a house with us. So uh, Dave, I'm convinced, is just even he's so much of a master that I, uh, I fail to perceive how. But, yeah, I, I think if you... I think if you looked at raw wins and nothing else, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I might have to take, I might take the title on that. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Cool, awesome. So, what I know, like famously, R and D missed um, Deceiver, Exarch, and Splinter Twin. Yeah. And Delva was a deck in the FFL, but it didn't have Vapor Snake. Right. So, has there been anything famous, I don't know if you can answer this or not, but like, has, there, has there been anything that was played in FFL a ways back, so that it's not relevant yeah. anymore, that the players missed? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely hard, you know, I don't want to be so egotistical as to be like, oh, the players missed this. I mean, you know, who knows whether it was the correct choice or not. The, the, the best deck that I've made, that I've played in real life, um, that the real world, as far as I can tell, never really had, was uh, when Mass Polymorph was legal in M11. I think there was a really, really good uh, Shards and uh, Zendikar block Mass Polymorph deck. Uh, it was yeah. basically just a blue-white control deck, except you got to play six-mana Tooth and Nail, and you had, like, all these cards that you were going to play anyway, like Elspeth and uh, Marshall Coup, which was really good at the time. <laughs> and then, like, you can play the, the, we call it Plantland, whatever, Call Me Garden, I think. Yeah, and, like, yeah. very low opportunity cost. Like, that card's just good anyway. And, uh, and and then just, you know, you're this great blue-white control deck with all the good cards, like Jace and Mana Leak and all those things. And then you just had six mana win the game on top of that. So I, I brought that to U.S. Nationals 2010 and, and did very, very well with it. I think that deck was good. I think Birthing Pod was really, really good for, like, an even longer time than it was a real deck in Standard. Like, we were terrified of that card the second it was printed. Uh, so I think that was, you know, and it took a while to catch on. So I'd say Mass Poly and different Birthing Pod decks uh, before it was popular were probably the, the two biggest See, things that stand out. To yeah, Birthing Pod was slight tangent. Sorry, slight tangent. Mass Poly uh, was my deck. I would oh, I just... What is mine, so... I play I played that around which was and I played again the uh, straight blue white oh, so cool. I was like oh, I can just like play counter spells all day and then just win yeah and, exactly. you just like counter it counter it path to exile that oh, okay you're dead <laughs> you know I mean uh, birthing pod Travis and I both share a common love for birthing pod I played the heck out oh, of it in standard yeah 
Oh yeah, I knew well, but you played like net deck and Nyapod, like oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I should not uh I'll give you Ruel's Bantpod deck, please. <laughs> then I went to Naya. Black Green Birthing Pod was where it was at, yeah, man. I played a lot of black green birthing pod. Yeah, yeah I, I love that. Guy. Strangle root guys into Glissa. <laughs> yeah, man. No, that's yeah. Aaron Forsythe was doing that, like chaining, like uh, it, it, there are some real nice ones. But like, uh, if you're playing as a creature that you like, chain skin render into Morkit Banshee and a Massacre Worm. Yep, it's not too bad. <laughs> Done it, and then Massacre Worm into Shieldred, and then you bring <laughs> back Massacre Worm. <laughs> yeah, really balanced. It's <laughs> just so good. I remember one tournament, uh, one of the other brewers in town was playing a blue-black control, and his win con was Army of the Damned. Oh, my goodness. So he played Army of the Damned, and I'm sitting there. In my hand, I have an acidic slime, and on the field, I have birthing pot, and I'm oh just s- slow-rolling the heck out of him, going, oh, man, 13 zombies, how do I deal with that? I guess I just get Massacre Worm and oh, 26 no. you. <laughs> That's all I do. Take, what, 26 damage, please? Yeah, that, that seems okay. That's yeah, <laughs> just... You got a slow roll. A story about Birthing Pod. Uh, that that card famously was the card that inspired Brian Tinsman, uh, lead designer of several Magic sets, including uh, Rise of the Eldrazi and Avacyn Restored. Uh, it was the the set. It was the card that got him to play his first FFL game in almost a decade. Wow. Yeah, it was that exciting of a card. Of course, at that time, Birthing Pod cost one mana and one mana to activate. So it costs one to cast and one to activate. Yeah, I mean, it was this was like in design when like no one had. I mean, it, it was like this way for a week or something. But like, yeah, it's hard to figure out exactly how powerful the effect is and whatever. And uh, it turns out it's very powerful. <laughs> Thank you for fixing that. Yeah, again, I mean, the other thing is, like, I mean, you hear stories like that, and you're like, God, are these stupid? But, like, we, we intentionally cost some effects, like, really, really, really overly aggressively um, be, just to make sure people play it and to figure out how fun it is and to figure out how good the play experience is. You know, the goal of, uh, of magic design is not for, like, each iteration of a card file to more and more accurately approximate the final file, the goal is for each iteration of the file to teach you the most information. Right? So, like, a lot of the time you hear stories about, like, obviously insanely costed cards, but the idea is to get people playing them in decks so that we can understand, okay, this play pattern is really enjoyable, or this play pattern really sucks, so we can figure out exactly what we want, you know, the standard environment to look like and what effects that we want to really sort of dominate in, in, in the field for two years. Yeah, if I could have ever got to uh, tutor for Birthing Pod with Trinket Mage, I probably would have crapped my pants. So. Oh, my goodness, man. <laughs> Never mind that. I mean, into, like, a four drop. <laughs> instead of going turn two, pay two life for a Birthing Pod, it's turn two, play a Birthing Pod, and then pot away my birds. That seems pretty good. Yeah, I, yeah. Now, now I really want a one casting cost birthing pod. <laughs> <laughs> Is this good? I mean, I don't know. I don't, well, you had a really good question that you wanted to ask earlier. Yeah. Okay. So, since you've been uh, trying to ruin magic forever, right? Yes. According so, to the internet, if you had to say pick, let's say five random number, it can be more, it can be slightly okay. more, slightly less. What are your biggest impacts that you'd say on the game? Like, what is it that you say 
came up with through design that you're like, that somehow changed magic or it's shifted magic, whether it's yeah. according to you or it's according to, like, the masses on the Internet. <laughs> I will not try and predict the masses on the Internet. Um, okay. I, that, that is a really good question. Part of it, you know, I, 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 my first set that I worked on was Rise of the Eldrazi, and the last set that you'll see my work on is Huey, which comes out the October after... Theros, which comes out this year. So I've had my impact on, you know, six blocks worth of magic sets, and uh, I, I hope that the game is better for it. Uh, um, I think the biggest takeaway, um, the, the, my biggest contribution, I think, to the game of magic is breaking down the idea that, you know, skill intensiveness and gameplay and simplicity are inherently at odds with one another. There's some sort of dichotomy between your ability to be straightforward and your ability to have a rich, robust gameplay experience. And I think the, the classic example of that is Magic 2013, which was my first lead development in the set that I'm the most proud of. I, I really am proud of that set. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of compliments. Uh, when people are not telling me that I'm ruining Magic for all time, I've, I've gotten a lot of compliments about the limited gameplay of Magic 2013 and, and just how robust of an environment that is for a core set. Well, at the same time, you know, the words per card are lower than M12. The grokkability or the intuitiveness of all of the cards is tremendously high. And yet you have, you know, probably the most robust core set limited environment ever. Um, and, and I don't say that to talk about, but I say that to say that, like, our goals for the set were to be extraordinarily accessible, extraordinarily resonant, and an incredibly rich, rewarding gameplay experience while providing the strategic depth that all of our enfranchised players want. And I think that, you know, I've always believed that that was possible. I think Innistrad showed that, like, the resonance part was possible, and huge amounts of credit to Mark Rosewater and Eric Lauer for that. But I think going forward, um, a, a lot of game designers, and, and, and Wizards in particular, are just going to be a lot more um, receptive to the idea that you, can, you don't have to sacrifice gameplay in order to, you know, please the new player, or in order to please the casual player, that you can have your cake and eat it too. And I think that's probably the, uh, that's probably what I would say is my is my biggest contribution to to magic. So before we get off M thirteen, and I know Travis, you got a question, but I just want to ask this one really quickly. You will win two fans on this podcast for the for life. Like we will be lifelong subscribers yeah, to the Zachel newsletter. No. If you tell us that you were responsible. For anything to do with Rock's Face Mender. Rock's Face Mender? Yeah, the, the uh, Double Your Life guy or whatever he is. Yep. yep. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I forget exactly who designed that card, but I, I mean, I, I'll give credit to myself for sure. No, I. I, I <laughs> the card just came in shit, and uh, it was just less cool, and we're like, why can't this be on a guy? And oh, okay, it'd be cool if the guy had lifelink, so he boosts himself. And then we're like, oh, it'd be cool if he has one power so that the more you boost him up, the bigger his effect gets, and just does cooler stuff. So it was kind of a back-and-forth created card. You know, we wanted to have a huge toughness, so that you can block and gain life every time. But I, yeah, oh. I mean, I, I hope I've won myself two fans, because I think I had a lot to do with yep. yep. right, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a chance to win a third one, just because I'm not on board with Rock's Faith Mender as much as they're in love with it, right. but right. what was the thought process behind Omniscience? So Omniscience is a, is a fascinating card. Uh, there was a, we were designing blue mythic rares for Magic 2013, and we wanted big spell effects. 
And we, you know, so we started top downing a bunch of things, and we're like, okay, like, what are the really cool mythic feeling things that you could top down? And uh, two of them were um, omnipotence and omniscience. And so uh, omniscience, what was originally called omniscience, became Enter the Infinite and was put into a later set. And omnipotence was the card you saw in Magic 2013. I always thought it made perfect sense. You know, I'm all powerful. I can do everything whenever I want to. I don't have to pay costs. Shut up. I'll do what I want. <laughs> uh, and then later on in development, uh, Mark Rosewater informed me that omnipotence was a black concept. Uh, I disagreed. I think that, you know, blue cheats on casting costs all the time. I think the idea is that, like, like black craves power in, like, the visceral dominating other people's sense. I think blue craves power, not craves power, but hungers for power in the sense of, you know, having everything at their fingertips and having no barriers between what can be and what is. So I thought it made sense in blue, but uh, it turns out Mark Rosewater is very good at his job and has been around for a long time and is, uh, you know, sort of the czar of the color pie, and he got to overhaul me. And the card was called uh, Omniscience, but uh, it, it was top-down omnipotence. That was the card. <laughs> uh, okay. So that's how that came to be. See, I, I like the fact that in design you were just like, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I don't care about you guys. Let's do it. That is a a common theme of a Zach Hill development file in general. (laughs) I I designed a lot more cards, I think, than your average developer from the ground up. Um, You know, not to, I mean, part of the reason I can do that is I've gotten very, very good design handoffs from Alexis Jansen and from Doug Byer and Aaron Forsyth on Magic 2013. So, you know, I can spend my time designing individual cards because the rest of the file is so awesome. But, uh, I definitely, a lot of cards that you'll see in Dragon's Maze and a lot of cards you see in M13 were just like, I have an idea. I'll type it into the file. Oh, people think it's cool. So it's uh, it's kind of how I roll. Well, since everyone seems to think you're trying to kill magic, did you have a hand in Thrag Task? Yeah, I did. I, I, I you know, like we wanted a card to do several things. Uh we wanted a card that was, you know, resilient against, like, Delver and Vapor Snag, that, you know, was reasonably expensive, that, you know, could provide some stability against the aggro decks that we knew were going to be really good, and just, you know, was a, a fair, solid, powerful, appealing card. Um, I, I, it's, it's impossible, it's impossible for me to fathom how Thrag Tusk could be really good. I mean, I, like, I mean, not like, it's obviously really good. the most fair card ever. But it's just, yeah, it's just the most balanced. I mean, it's just the fairest, reasonable, totally not doing anything bananas card. I mean, I, you know, it, people are like, this card is bright. Like, I've, I've played on the Pro Tour since 2001. And if you told me at any point before, like, 2012, that the card that was supposed to be, like, bannably good was a upside frost ogre, I would have told you that you're crazy. I mean, and, you know, and, and, and like, I remember at Grand Prix Atlantic City, I showed up with a red-black aggro, aggro deck. I ended up cashing. I started out 10-1. Everyone's like, how does your aggro deck beat Thragtusk? And it's like, Thragtusk wasn't particularly good. I mean, like, flying is an ability. I don't know. So, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's super fun. I mean, you know, like, Thragtusk, again, it's a very good card. But acting as though you can't beat Thrag Tusk, I think, is, is employing a little bit of hyperbole, uh, to say the least. I mean, I love the card. Uh, this would be an interesting one to see if there were any 
changes to it. Like, did it at any point cost three GG? Yeah, it, it cost three GG for most of its lifespan, and uh, we just we, we decided to be a little more interesting for Mordex to have access to it. We didn't. Uh, there were a lot of cards in the file that cost multiple green mana. Um, getting. I mean, I, I can tell. Like, I've told the sort of meta story of Drag Dust. There's a lot more to it. I mean, like, you know, we didn't want. We knew it was going to be a tournament powerful card. We like to push good, solid, mid-range cards because they're cards that you can work around and they make the environment a little bit more diverse because they aren't, like, really linear high-powered cards. They're really modular high-powered cards. You do a lot of things with them. So it's smart to put your power in cards like that. But we, like, didn't want um, a lot of the five-mana tournament-playable cards in M13 to all require double G in their mana cost. Um, like, we knew Garrick Primal Hunter would be very good. And so we wanted, you know, to sort of diversify a little bit. And we decided Drag Tusk would be a little bit better if it could go into a greater variety of decks. So that's why it is. Yeah, and I mean, I think recently we've seen that it's not unbeatable. I mean, you've got Naya Blitz just doesn't even care that, that Drag Tusk because there is no turn five. Right. And that's like Sorry. the aggro deck that Drag Tusk is supposed to be good against. Yeah, I mean, well, one thing I always wondered about Thrag Tusk, because everybody said it was built to beat Delver, but I often wondered if it was also there because Zombies was incredibly good in the FFL and you needed a hedge against it. I think that's reasonable. I mean, it's sort of aggressively not a hedge against Zombies in a sense, because it sort of trades straight up with Garoth's Messenger, and uh, Messenger, you know, costs two fewer mana. I, sure. I it's reasonable against Zombies. It was a Leaves playability precisely because of Delver. But it was largely printed to just be, like, a good, conservative, resilient, green card. And, yeah. uh, you know, again, a card like, you know, Thrag Tusk, again, didn't win the Pro Tour. I mean, like, I don't want to say that. My point is not, oh, I'm being result-oriented, I've won the argument. The point is that, like, if Thrag Tusk was manably good, the best team on Earth, arguably, Team Star City, wouldn't have showed up to the tournament with a deck that didn't contain Thrag Tusk. Right? Yeah. You know, it's obviously not that powerful, or not that obviously powerful, because then the, all the good players would play it and roll their eyes when you don't play it. So, I, I think the thing about Dragon Tusk is it sets a really high initial bar, but also is a card that's pretty interesting to work around. And, you know, it's, it's fair, and if the worst, you know, if the biggest, most oppressive beast in a format is this kind of very fair thing, I think your environment is probably in a good place, and we're seeing that with the standard environment. I mean, none of the formats have been solved since Return to Ravnica was legal, which is, like, one of the first times that's ever happened. So I, I think the strategy is working for what it's worth. I'd agree with that. I would, too. Oh, I like uh, agreement. Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you have a hand in coming up with Hexproof or the, the big change to making it a keyword? Yeah, I mean, this was sort of a company-wide decision. There's a lot of arguments about that have Hexproof, and there's people on both sides. I mean, I, I like Hexproof, and the reason is as follows. Like, when we add Shroud, people played Shroud. Like, most players that we talked to played Shroud as though it was Hexproof. It's just, like, yeah. non-intuitive that you have this upside ability on your card that, like, doesn't let you do stuff to your card. Um, and, and I think it's like, like when the when Solana Ledgewalker was printed, it was one of the most like popular cards in the set. And it's this totally innocuous two mana one one that like isn't very good. But like people like 
being able to not, like, they like to be able to be confident that other people aren't going to mess with their stuff. And, you know, and, like, when you look at hexproof as a keyword, uh, you put hexproof on all kinds of cards that people never talk to me about being a remote problem. Like, no one complains about Garrick's or Primal Hunt Beast or whatever it is. No one complains about the four mana 2-2 two, two flyer in Magic 2012. People complain, and I think rightly so, when Hexproof leads to a variety of non-interactivity on other axes. I think Invisible Stalker pushes the limit a little bit too much because it's a human that turns on the equipment to make it good. Um, but you know, Invisible Stalker is not a good Magic card. It comes good in context by virtue of what enables it. But I think the problem with Invisible Stalker is not a problem with Hexproof. I, and, and similarly with Dice the Saint Trap, I, I actually am one of the people responsible for Dice the Saint Trap, but I, you know, I, I think it's a fun card. I think you know, it's not accidental that it was in a set with Tribute to Hunger and Liliana and Vale. Um, you know. <laughs> it, you know, like, it's like a card with protection from red or something. Like, yes, if what you want to do is interact with Dice the Saint Trap, not in the combat phase you're going to need to change your deck around a little bit. And if you don't change your deck around and you keep losing to the card because you refuse to change your deck around, I don't know that that's Geist of St. Trap's fault. You know, if too much of the environment becomes defined by cards that are too difficult to interact with, I do think that's a design problem. And certainly I think, you know, we, we pushed Hexproof and Constructed more than might have been ideal. But I think when you look at the benefits of having the mechanic be shroud versus the benefits of having the mechanic be hexproof, I think the danger of an overly powerful hexproof card in an environment is outweighed by an intuitive, appealing mechanic that allows you to do what you would intuitively want to do with your own magic card. Was there a reason that it seemed to shift? I mean, it used to be what we called Troll Shroud, Troll Shroud, um, yes. and a green ability, but it seems to be mostly blue now. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason it used, it's mostly blue is precisely because of Shroud. I mean, Shroud was a keyword that you could put on blue cards. Uh, blue is kind of short of creature keywords, so you'll find it more frequently used on blue cards just because, you know, to pan out cycles or to just, you know, be a mechanic that you could use at common. So, I mean, definitely the shift from uh, predominantly green to predominantly blue secondary green, and still at green at a lot of high-profile cards, I think was due explicitly to the shift away from Shroud. Now, that said, like, it, it is completely true that you need to use Hexproof more sparingly than you use Shroud. And I think that we're getting to a little bit more optimal level of, uh, of our use of that keyword. But again, the overwhelming majority of cards with Hexproof are not problems at all, and I think actually serve to make environments a little bit more fun. Uh, it's, it's simply that when a card with Hexproof occupies a disproportionate percentage of the metagame, I think it can be a pretty dissatisfying experience. And I think that's a lesson that we've learned. And I don't think we ever even got to that point. No matter how good Geist of Saint Traft is, like it was never as dominant as even Delva was. No, like, I mean, it saw a lot of play. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. And I think, like in older formats, you know, people are like, you know, okay, it's occupying a ton of space in modern. But I mean, again, like 
There are a lot of ways to deal with the Isensane Trap in Modern. I, Drew Levin made the finals of a PTQ with a deck that I made that, like, was just casting Geth's Verdict on, you know, people that would tap out and slam down Geistensane Traps. I mean, I think in most formats, they're not only, like, ways to answer it, but, like, ways to answer it with value. Um, you, yeah. you just got to be cognizant of the fact that those are there and adjust your deck accordingly. I mean, Yeah, I just up the number of par- uh, Phantasmal Image in my Birthing Pod deck to accommodate it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's roll with that guy. Doomblade, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So, if we can just uh, switch over now to Dragon's Maze. Sure. Actually, which is obviously last question. I want to see yeah, if love- he knows this. Do you know what the first set to have Hexproof was? Well, like, it wasn't a keyword back then, but do you know what the first set to have Hexproof was? Uh, was it Arabian Nights? Mm, I can't remember. No. Too oh, far well, back. Well, Oh, yeah. It was Portal Three Kingdoms. Now Portal I feel special because I stumped you. Really? What <laughs> yeah. was it? Uh, it was, what was it? It was something like Taoist Hermit. It was like oh, a 2-2 yeah? for 3 or something like that. Uh-huh. Awesome. Okay. Interesting. I, I just I just feel special now because I stumped you. So. You absolutely did. I think I was we... thinking of El Hajaj, which had Lifelink without being called Lifelink. Uh... <laughs> oh, okay, the good yeah. old days. Uh, yeah, no, that's awesome. Though. I didn't know that. So I, I, I wanted to bring up one other thing. I know we'll start talking about Dragon's Maze, but I didn't actually answer one of your questions. You're like, what have you contributed to magic? I think the other thing is just not being afraid of aggressive decks. You know, there was, a old, uh, there was an old article where it was like, can you print R21 can't block? And it was like, oh, this is too good. But you can actually do a variable rate equation on just like, how good aggressive creatures can be relative to how good control decks that kill things and draw cards are. And it turns out that for most of Magic's history, aggro just literally wasn't good enough to beat raw resource advantage one for one, kill your guys, and then cast card drawing spells. So yeah. I think running away, you know, not being afraid of good aggro decks was another thing. Sorry. I, I, I mean, right, right now we have B21 can't block with upside. So. Oh yeah, grave. I, I made that card. <laughs> well, that, never mind. Never mind that. You have Goblin Guide, right? Goblin Guide. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Before we go to Dragon Space, this question has been bugging me. Yes. Was Ash Zealot meant to be Red's super two drop? Uh no. I, I I've always been fascinated by that that sort of thing. That like oh well. You know, there, there's Snapcaster Mage and Stoneforge Mystic and Tarmogoyf and Dark Confidant. What's Red thing? I mean, that, that, that's not really a cycle. <laughs> like, nor, <laughs> nor is it a good idea to, like, print standard cards that are that powerful. Ashdell was supposed to be a really good two-drop that was really good specifically against Snapcaster Mage. Um, but, it, you know, it wasn't like this pattern completion thing. Uh, that said, you know, like, it's it's good, but no, it wasn't supposed to be like this is the best red two drop ever played in all formats or whatever. There you have it, folks. There is no cycle. Stop asking. <laughs> Feel free to keep on asking, but uh, no, there's not. There's no like intentional cycle. So with Dragon's Maze around the corner, pre-releases this weekend. Everybody should go and support their local game store. Yes. What to, for those who don't know, what was your role with the set? So I was the lead developer of Dragon's Maze. Um, that means that I 
was largely in, I, I had final control of the file, meaning I did a lot of the final game design, designing individual cards, designing the final structure, and most importantly, designing the gameplay experience of the set. Uh, as it happens, I was also uh, working for a thing that R&D had going on at the time called Architecture, which was responsible for the Ravnica and then the Dolcat and then the Dragon's Maze Dolcat Ravnica draft experience. Uh, so that department came up with things like how the pre-releases were going to be formatted and how we wanted to make sure we were designing Return to Ravnica to work with full-block draft. So I, um, I both did a lot of the design for Dragon's Maze specifically, as well as how Dragon's Maze was going to play in standard, how it was going to play in draft, and how it was going to interact with the previous sets before it. So basically this is your baby. This is my baby. Not, I, mean, yeah, I, I have a lot to do with this set and with Ragnica Block in general. But I mean, I, I certainly don't want to take credit away from my team, who was amazing, or lead designer Alexis Jansen, who provided the skeleton for a lot of the set to work. But yeah, I, if you had to name one person on Earth that had the most to do with Dragon's Maze, uh, it, it, would, it would be either myself or Alexis. See, I like how you slipped another name in there. That way, when people like come with all the hate of like, "Ah, oh, Dragon's Maze, Zach ruined magic," you'd be like, "No, <laughs> no, no, it was her. It was yeah. her. I nothing to do with it." The good stuff, yeah, that was me. Yeah, right, right, exactly. You blame everything so, down on other people. Blame everything down on me. Yes. So the fir- the first question about the set. Now, before I ask you this, I need a meta question. Are you a watcher of Game of Thrones? I'm not a watcher of Game of Thrones. I have watched Game of Thrones. But I would not define myself as a watcher of Game of Thrones. Ooh, that's actually the incorrect answer, I'm afraid. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> why am I in the wrong? Please, Because the show is awesome. Hi, I'll make sure to watch more of it. I do want to get around to watching it. I've missed many a Game of Thrones viewing party, but uh, I've yet to be acquainted with the show. That's a thing? Wow, I need to have this. Big rule. So this next question will resonate with our listeners, but probably not so much with you. I need to know. This set is called Dragon's Maze. Yes. Where are my dragons, Zach? I think that is a very good question. Uh, Ryan Kibler has talked to me about uh, where the dragons and Dragon's Maze are. Dragon's Maze is named after Nip Mizzet. It's his maze. He's plotting to you know, get people to run it or whatever. But uh, I, I, I do think, had I owned the entire development cycle that the set would be called Dragon's Maze. I wouldn't be sure there were some dragons in it. I think that was a missed oh. opportunity. We do have that overload card that makes everything into a dragon. Oh, yeah. for something. But I, I do agree that there, there could have afforded to have some proper dragons in the Dragon schmagons. You know, uh, I still don't have any squirrels. Come on, Chatter, where are they at? Dude, man, I am working with you on the squirrels. I have tried my background for the last two years with that Ron Spencer playmat with the, like, wear squirrels. Yeah, I traded a dual land for that. <laughs> to oh, get yeah, one. yeah, that playmat is really That playmat is awesome. I wanted to get some squirrels in there. We have a... Uh, there was that card in Commander, right, that was some squirrel card. Yeah. Acorn catapult. Yeah. Acorn catapult, yes, squirrel catapult. That was, that was what you were trying. All right, I, that was a Mark Purvis, Zach Hill, Mark joint. Mark Rosewater is a big fan of squirrels. There's a lot of squirrel support in Wizards. I would, I believe that squirrels may one day make their return. I have no insider info. I don't know that. But I'm just saying there is a lot of squirrel support inside the halls of Wizards and the Coast. But, but you're confirming in Theros Block there's not a squirrel tribal theme. I, I'm not confirming that. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I'll keep my fingers crossed until then. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to look on Salvation. Zach Hill neither confirms nor denies squirrel tribal themes, <laughs> except one of spoiler deranged hermit. <laughs> He's dressed up I mean, in toga. Oh, uh, and I'm going to Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> So we had uh, we had asked our uh, listeners to send in a couple of questions about the set, and by far the two most popular okay. were, where is Birds of Paradise? Yeah. And where is Mortify? Uh, Mortify, I will not... I, I, all I will say about Mortify is I, we thought about it, and uh, it's not in the set. Uh, the second, the, as to... What was it? The Birds of Paradise. Um, the, I don't, personally, I just, I think that for really, really, first of all, like, I think Birds of Paradise has some issues as a magic card, and it's, like, really a cool thing, but it's, like, not a green card at all. Um, and more prominently, like, we already have a one mana, mana elf, um, our, uh, Avacyn's Pilgrim that makes off-color mana, and it gets way too easy for you to build like five-color mid-range decks when you have more one-drops that make off-color mana. Um, for a really, really long time, we had like between 12 and 16 one-mana accelerants that you could play in standard. It just kind of got tiresome, uh, and, you know, I it, it was a card that we thought about playing, but, you know, there's no... The question presupposes that Birds of Paradise should exist for some reason. And the simple, unpopular, boring, but I think real answer is just that because the environment as a whole would be less fun than if it were there. Um, you know, magic can't have Birds of Paradise forever. And I don't so, think it should. I know you didn't say this. Yeah. But I am, and I know that you can't confirm or deny this. Yeah. But I am totally reading into your lack of comment on Mortify that it's coming very soon. I know you can't possibly comment on that, but that's what I'm choosing to take from your statement. <laughs> yeah, and, and all I'll say about Mortify is, that, like, whenever, like, you know, it, 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 former magic designer Matt Place and I uh, often joke about this sentiment that we hear when people, you know, yeah, people play magic for a long time, really passionate about it, think about it a lot. You know, I, I appreciate that. But it's like, you know, I have thought about this for literally dozens of hours, and I can't imagine why I think X. And, like, I respect that. But, like, like, you know, people at Wizards do this all day, every day, and then go home and play more magic. So, like, if there's a glaring emission for, like, or something that is, like, glaringly should be some other way, I think it's far more likely that that emission is intentional. And, you know, maybe it's a correct decision, maybe it's not. I'm definitely not saying R&D gets it right all or even most of the time. But I think that there is usually a reason not to just assume, like, these people are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> That's just probably not what's going on. So, yes, mortifying is a deliberate omission from the set. I mean, you might be able to answer this, though. Was it a case of there are way too many powerful enchantments in this set, we don't want to make them so easy to kill? 
it, that, that was not the story, no. Okay. I figured you'd be able to say yes, yes on that. But I can say that. Because there, there are a lot of powerful enchantments into the set. Was that a conscious uh, theme or cycle or something? I mean, you've got like yes. the uh, Legion's Initiative and Deadbridge chant and all that. Yeah, that, for sure. I mean, uh, a thing that I like, I Zachiel very personally and into making powerful auras. Um, you know, auras that you can theoretically just play because they're good. A card that I fought really hard for was Spectral Flight which I think is just good enough to play and construct it and you see it in decks every now and then. Uh, but I like cards like that because, like, again, just as you have to fight really hard against raw resource advantage to try and make it bad, you have to fight really hard, or not bad, but just not oppressively good. You have to fight on the other end really hard for raw resource disadvantage to be good enough to play, Right? And I think magic is good when it has a little bit of that. So I am a big believer in powerful enchantments and specifically powerful arms because it's a card type that magic supports, and I think the standard environment should have, you know, cards of every type represented that you can play, not just, you know, Oblivion Ring and no other enchantments. So that, that was certainly a deliberate choice. So then can we assume that you're the one that's responsible for the last you make the card being an enchantment over a land? <laughs> <laughs> I was not there for any. That was, that was <laughs> So Zach Hill's denying that he stuffed the ballot box on this one and used his I, influence not, at Wizards. I killed magic in other ways. Not <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm looking forward to seeing what the uh, community comes up with for that. It could be interesting. Yeah, me too. So a couple of a uh, couple of cards that we picked out that we'd really like to sort of cool. discuss with you as cards that we love from the set. Uh, I am a really big Taser fan. Oh yeah, awesome. I I, appreciate it. I think she's seven. I know she's seven mana, but like the text box is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it's not an ability. My feeling is that she has potential to be. Obviously, she's not the same type of card, mm-hmm. but I think she can do to standard what Elish Norn did. Sort of come out of nowhere. Yeah, I, I totally see where you're coming from. I mean, obviously, we're not saying the cards are as powerful as each other, but, uh, you know, it was, it was designed to, like, be a card that you could at least consider playing in standard. I mean, you know, Vigilance Pro Creatures is a very powerful combination, and it's an insanely difficult card to race. So, I mean, it would, it would make me happy if Taza saw some standard play. I'm not sure that that's, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if she didn't. But, yeah, it's one of my favorite cards in the set. So, a lot of people have complained about the fact that she's a 4-4, despite the fact that she has this birth defect, and she's a human, and humans don't normally get that big. Yeah. Uh, Did she always have that high of a power and toughness? Yeah, I mean, she was always expensive and big. I mean, like, if you look throughout Magic's history, and Brady Domerman and I have talked about this at length, like, normal, regular, good old humans don't usually get above, like, 3-2-ish, maybe 3-3. But legendary humans have gotten huge. And our, our take is basically, you know, like, if something is a legend, it can be, he or she can be, you know, basically whatever stats you want. I mean, stats are not just indicative of, like, size. I mean, Kaza's, you know, one of the most powerful beings on Ravnica. She can do some damage, she can absorb a punch, whether that's, you know, because she's, you know, muscular and blocking it. No, no, not necessarily. But, I mean, she, you know, she's not a weakling. 
so, I mean, I, I think that when you get into legendary creatures, you're dealing with a little bit more than just, like, how brutally can this person swing a sword, you know what I'm saying? It's a shame, because these are all very reasonable and sensible arguments, and the internet just doesn't like yeah. those. So you're going to get ripped to shreds for this. Man. Yeah, and I like that you said you mentioned you talked to Brady about it. I mean, how how big an impact is the, the flavor considerations when you're making these cards? Oh, I mean, I mean tremendously. Uh, you know, the, the one of the reasons Magic has gotten a lot more successful recently is because R&D has tried to do a lot better job of, pa- of pairing flavor with mechanics. In fact, something that I teach uh, in the class I occasionally lecture at MIT is that flavor is not distinct from mechanics. Um, because if you know your flavor and your mechanics totally depend upon each other, and the successful conveyance of the experience of the game or of the card is dependent upon the interplay between flavor and mechanics, it's not even useful to think about them as distinct from one another. So, I mean, like, a huge huge amount of effort goes into not only making sure that the mechanics make sense creatively, but of using what is going on with the creative environment, with the you know, individual concepts of cards, to make magic cards more intuitive and more resonant and more reflective of their flavor. I mean, I think that's a, a huge uh, leap forward that magic's taken over really the last about five years. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Travis, so what was the uh, first card you wanted to talk about? Uh, the first card I wanted to talk about was Gaze of Granite, our yes. new pernicious deed. Yes. So yeah, how did this uh, how did this come about? Like, obviously, pernicious deed is a card that players love and has been missing from standard and even modern. Yeah, we've had to deal with the equal to X ability for so long. It's so great to have X or less again. X or less. Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, the card is very clearly an, an obvious homage to Pernicious Deed. Uh, you know, it's less powerful than Pernicious Deed. Uh, it also hits Planeswalkers, which I, does, I can't remember. Does Deed hit Planeswalkers? I can't remember. No. Yeah, that, that, that's one of the reasons. That's one of the issues with Deed is, like, playing a bunch of walkers and then Deeding for a million is bananas. So we wanted to be able to, to deal with that. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Deed, we knew, is a really, really popular card. It's an effect that makes sense in black and green. And so we wanted to bring a version to the table that, you know, was a little bit more reasonable for, for the balance of the standard environment. Did this start sure. out as an enchantment, though, or was it always uh, a sorcery? It, it was always a sorcery. It was always sort of intended to be, like, you know, deed but more expensive. Uh, and, and there's a lot of game design problems with, like, having enchantments that blow stuff up. Um, it's just a really disheartening experience for, like, something to be sitting on the table and then, like, your opponent has to, like, now do this annoying value calculus of, like, how many things do I play that I know are going to die because I need to get the best. I mean, it's, it's, it, it sounds like the kind of thing that wouldn't maybe not be all that fun, but is actually hideously unfun, and you see that over and over and over again. Uh, so, you know, we don't want a card that's just, like, sitting there ticking down saying, like, at some point, you are going to lose your entire board. Now, please, you know, calculate the least dissatisfying way. That you can... <laughs> <laughs> and I think the fact that in in modern deed would almost definitely be combined with Sun Titan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. And, and again, just with planeswalkers and stuff in modern. Plus, like you know, again, you don't want to make it like super way too easy to just like 
raw resource exchange the entire board, like any kind of permanent. It's just like, it, it's, it sounds more fun than it is. Yeah, it's like the card is super appealing and cool, and so, like, I hate being the person that says, like, oh, it's not correct to print birds, or, like, oh, it's not correct to print deed, because the cards are really popular. But, like, the, you know, we aren't, like, it's not, it would be a trivial exercise to just print appealing cards, right? Like, you know, that's not challenging to do. Um, but when you do that, uh, you would expect, if that was the correct thing to do, for more people to play Magic and more people to buy Magic cards. That's not what happens. <laughs> you know, people play for the overall gameplay experience. Uh, because more people, even if Pernicious Deed occupies 49% of the metagame, more people are playing against it than playing with it. You know, and that's the experience that's often lost when you're thinking about whether you should print individual cards. So, yeah, I mean, point being, we thought the effect was cool, we thought it made sense for black and green, we wanted to print an appealing, powerful card, it was not really ever an enchantment at any point in its design. Okay. Well, anything come to mind? Yeah, actually, I have, uh, I'm going to do you a service, Chris. Because, uh, Zach, you had mentioned that you wanted to print, you wanted as little words as possible on cards. Or yeah. wanted to try to get it that way, right? Okay. For M13 specifically, that is not true for most magic sets. Okay. Because the question that I have is, for Wake the Reflections, don't you think it should have just said Populate and nothing else? Uh, the card that says Populate... That it's, uh, it's one white Populate. Yeah, I don't think it should just say Populate. You know, the, the, the thing that's easy to forget when you're, like, a really enfranchised magic player, and we did this too in R&D, is, like, Oh, your large set comes out in October. So, you know, oh, you've introduced people to populate and they're familiar with it. And now, like, the set that comes out to support that, they'll already know what populate is, so you don't need reminder tags. But that's a totally artificial construction that in no way reflects how people actually buy magic cards. And there's no reason to think that more people would just, like, be purchasing things in October than in, you know, April or May, whenever this comes out. Now, you get more sales for October sets. And it's largely because it's a large set. The point being that, like, people in the real world who are playing Magic are not beholden to the artificial rules of a set release. And especially when Gatecrash doesn't have a single mention of Populate at all, I think it would be irresponsible to just sort of expect players who open up packs and see the card in their common slot to have any idea what this card did. And in fact, not only is it confusing, it's actively sort of disheartening to a player that opens up a pack, expects to see what cards did, and, like, sees this card that just has a meaningless word on it. Because if you played Magic for most of Magic's history, specifically for all of Magic's history except the small sliver of time when Return to Ravnica came out, you would have no idea what this card did. And I think that's just irresponsible and disrespectful to players. So I think, you know, it's important to have the reminder text on there to respect that, like, Players aren't all just religiously memorizing every single magic card and every single magic mechanic. Yeah, absolutely. It just would have been cool to have a card with just one word. Yes, yes, that is really <laughs> true. It would have been very cool for that guy. Uh, actually, sorry to interrupt, Chris, but two quick follow-ups. Uh, was Mind Static ever called uh, Two Mana Lake in, the product, in development? <laughs> uh, I don't think so, but that's not a bad name for it. There was a a meme one time that was like, R&D is really good at making cards. They just had, like, stuff stapled together, like, 
two uh, Wanderer's Twig and, you know, Armillary Spear, wherever it was. Yeah, uh, two man to explore. Oh, that was something else. <laughs> <laughs> and also, uh, please tell me you had nothing to do with trait doctoring. What is trait doctoring? It's the change the text of target permanent by replacing all instances of one color word with another, or one basic land type with another. As you yeah. can see from the tone of my voice, I don't like this card. <laughs> yeah. What's not to like about trait doctoring? Well, hey, the old magical hack decks were awesome. See, here, here's the thing. Like, from from my perspective, I remember one being a new player and like opening packs where like in the rare slot it was this, and I'm like, I'm never, I I can't play this. What's going on here? No, that, that's certainly a valid point. I mean, you, you've got to like be very like judicious about the times that you print stuff, like trade doctoring. I mean, it's definitely the card for like the guy that wants to like. You know, play a million circles of protection or things like that, and like well, you know, and that, that, that was that was my next point because I remember well, I playing. Played no, no, I, I, I remember playing. In, I remember playing uh, in Invasion Odyssey block. You know, yes. where you had all these fun, cool decks. Yet, uh, and then there was just always this random guy who's playing the Circle of Protection. Uh, I forget what the card was named then, but like Circle Protection Trait Doctoring deck, and you're like, why? Like, I get that my spirit monger can change colors, but, like, come on, why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like, certainly we don't want trait doctoring that deck to be, like, a ubiquitous feature of standard environments, but, like, we, you know, people play magic for a bunch of different reasons. There's that card, there's that, like, red enchantment that, uh, you know, kind of just, like, wacky effects. They're not going to be appealing to most people. But some people somewhere are going to like them. And, I, I, you know, the correct number of that card to print is not zero. And it's definitely, like, not a very large number either. And you're going to have more people that dislike that card than the people that like it. But as Mark Rosewater talks about a lot, you've got a lot of people that really like it. And that card is for those people. You know, we, as much as I talk about, you know, oh, you want to make magic more accessible, you want to make it simpler, you want to make packs easier to understand, I, I don't mean, and I never have meant, that you should do that at the expense of all the things that make magic rich and complex and robust and tailorable to your individual personality. It's just that you have to print those cards in proportion to the percentage of the player base those represent. So, you know, I, I think that... Uh, a card like Trade Doctoring is sort of a shout-out to the type of Magic player that likes that, even though most people will not necessarily be satisfied with it. Yeah, I have a friend who's quit Magic three times, but he's always kept a deck that uses uh, Rotlung Reanimator and Artificial Evolution <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah, and then just get infinite uh, uh, zombie tokens or whatever it is. Yep. I was just talking the other night about how I wish Artificial Evolution was in modern because it's really funny for that Kiki Restoration Angel deck. Oh, where they, totally. You know, like flash in Restoration Angel, target Kiki Jiki, but you can't because Restoration Angel says non-goblin creature. <laughs> <laughs> so at the same time, then you could just put it... Uh, no, never mind, you couldn't. I forget <laughs> what I'm doing. Yeah, go back to sleep, Travis. Uh, the the kind of people that... Pl- the kind of people that will play uh, trait doctoring are called judges because oh, that's yeah. the kind of thing we love. Uh-huh. Exactly. One card I really want to ask about because I am a huge dragon fan is is dragon form or as I call it, army of Trogdor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is this yours? Like, did you do this? Because thank you. 
I, I can't remember, actually, who made this card. Uh, it may have come out of this. I thought the original card made an opposing creature a 1-1 and your guy a 4-4 dragon. Um, it turns out that was really hard to template with uh, Overload, and so we just made it into Make Your Guy a Dragon. But I, I think it's a really cool card. You know, I, I like the idea of, like, you know, we, it turns out giant growths are really fun, and, like, having more giant growths in more colors is fun. And I think it's also a really fun just overload effect of being like, surprise, my guys are dragons, you're dead. So and it's a card I really like and a card I like to be able to put in the rare slot where it's like, it's very good and limited. It's not just an overrun. It's a card that like is probably not good and constructive, but I can see playing in some crazy context. And I think it makes for good stories. Like, oh, all my stuff, but that, but that, to the skies, you know. So I, uh, I, I like the card a lot. I will be playing this card in standard. Awesome. It will be... uh, I have no idea yet. I write an article series each week where I set myself a bunch of achievements to unlock in a sort of Xbox PlayStation style, and one of the achievements will be to one-shot someone with dragon form. (laughs) I think it's... it's, uh, Which conveniently they all are. <laughs> I think I think we just built a deck. <laughs> huh. Well, yeah, like you, you might have done this. <laughs> so you mentioned mana uh, mana drain earlier. Yes. I know Travis, you're particularly excited about this one. Yep. So plasm capture. Yeah. So um, uh, mana drain's fat friend. About it. <laughs> yeah. So was this just a case of, we think we can reprint Mana Drain, it just has to cost more? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, this was a, I think this was a development team card. It may have been a Dactyl types in the final. I can't remember, but it, I mean, so, so this is a good chance to talk about one of the things that Dragon's Maze is supposed to do. So that way back when we were coming up with what the structure of, uh, of, of Return to Ravnica Block is supposed to look like, we thought about, like, okay, what went right and what went wrong about the original wrapping up. Most things went right about it. It was totally amazing. The thing that was a bummer was, oh, my guild is Golgari. Well, that's nice. You don't get any more magic cards for the rest of the block. Like, that bites. Right. right? So one of the things we wanted to do was make, we, we, we called Dragon's Maze for a long time Ravnica DLC. You know, we wanted to... <laughs> And we wanted it to be downloadable content for whatever your favorite deck was. So on top of Dragon's Maze needing to be like a really cool set that switched up the limited environment tremendously, and I do think the DGM Gate Crash Ravnica limited environment is very good. Uh, on top of doing that and sort of being a set to experience in its own right, it had to have a lot of just like this card is cool, you know, and not evolved, not some mechanic, not battalion, not like gates. But just, like, cards that are a color combination that are really awesome. And uh, this card was an example of that. Of just, like, this could be in any blue-green set. It doesn't have to necessarily be in a set that's on Ravnica. But Ravnica needs to have some of that. So, like, this card's an example of that. Like, black-red 3-1 haste is an example of that. You know, just, like, cards that are like, okay, this is makes sense in the colors and is 
pretty good. Let's see what happens. So that's kind of how this card came to be. Was it ever GG, uh, UUG? Like, no, no. Was it? <laughs> that been a little too good. That, that, was, that was one of these cards on, like, Birthing Pod that started with a high amount of cost and came down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was originally one UUG, um, but that started to get annoying and, like, bant control type decks, and we actually thought it was cooler if it was just UUGG. Maybe you have to work a little bit harder to play it, so uh, that's how it wound up where it is. I think it was all four mana, though. Have you got any cool, like, playtesting stories about this card that you can tell us? Like, maybe some blowout you hit with it that involves only cards that we know about? Uh, <laughs> like, did you ever cast it, and then, uh, did you ever cast it, counter something, and then untap an omniscience? I countered an omniscience and untapped an omniscience. <laughs> 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 that's... We played a lot more Gilded Lotus than I think uh, the real world has. I mean, there's good reasons for that or whatever, but uh, we we played a lot of Gilded Lotuses, and there was plenty of Gilded Lotus into this card, into totally ridiculous bananas stuff. Um, I, I was a big fan of Advent of the Worm, so there was a lot of, well, am I playing around Restoration Angel or Advent of the Worm or Mana Drain right now? Uh, who knows? So, Yeah. The, the omniscience and the omniscience is probably the best thing I ever actually did with this game. I think that qualifies as pretty damn bonkers. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> I just have an extra mana in my mana pool. Hmm. <laughs> what can I do once nothing costs any mana? If only my deck was full of bananas expensive spells that you might want to mana drain into. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like you built your deck around the card. I mean, <laughs> who does that? Exactly. Awesome. Uh, Will, you got another one for us? Uh, yeah. For for Ral Zarek. Yes. What, what was the thought process behind the ultimate? Like, who who first came into this, and in what way was it kind of put forth of, the hey, you know what we should do? I, I do distinctly remember this. The ultimate was literally me typing this into a file. Um, that I, I'm not confident Manders. I think Manders probably the, the ultimate was literally me typing it into a file along with the first ability. Um, I was at Wizards at like 11.30 at night after a cube draft. And uh, basically, you know, we had a bunch of abilities that we weren't that excited about. Uh, and then we were just like, okay, like, the whole gimmick with Ral Zarek, uh, Dave Humphreys actually designed in Duels 2012 the original Ral Zarek deck. But it was supposed to be like epitomizing a thunderstorm. Uh, you know, like bolts of crazy inspirational electricity and brilliance, uh, which is why he shoots lightning bolts. Um, but the, 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 so we were trying to get the feeling right. We had a lot of, like, casting instants or sorceries, but, like, Chandra sort of did that. We had, like, drawing a bunch of cards, but that, like, wasn't that fun. We had, like, making emblems that forked things like crazy, but we ended up wanting to do that on uh, the, the guild champion in this set. So a good template I like to use for Planeswalker Ultimates is, like, if it's an ultimate of a three-mana card, it would cost, like, eight-ish mana. If it's an ultimate of, like, a four-mana or a Planeswalker, you should get, like, a ten or eleven-mana effect. I mean, it depends on how long it takes to get to the ultimate. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a rough rule. So I was thinking of Time Stretch, and then it's just like, well, I can make a card that's a little bit better than Time Stretch, but also cooler and more chaotic and more exciting. And so I came up with uh, flip five coins, uh, you know, basically get two and a half turns, and uh, 
it was pretty popular and felt is it and just kind of felt right. So that's that's how that card came to be. So oh, yeah. that that ability was like that. That was the first line of text you... Well, not the first line of text, but that was the line of text you came up with and it just stuck? Uh, I mean, the card probably had like 15 ultimates, but I mean, that ability came out of whole cloth. And we were like, yeah, okay, this is the one we want. (laughs) Yeah, this is... This is crazy. Like the, the card, the card feels is it from the the ground up? Do you know? Is, is it supposed to be a, inspired by anyone? The art because it reminds me of somebody, and I can't quite figure out who. Huh? There, there's an element of like Urte in it, but I, I mean that's totally uh, incidental. No, I mean the, they came up with a concept art for the Planeswalker again for duels. I think the idea, like again, it was supposed to be like the stormy, blitzy thing, which led like very readily to incident. Which also worked well in the context of duels of the Planeswalkers. And so, I mean, I, I, it's one of those things where, like, we debuted the character, okay, they're from Ravnica. Okay, we should probably put this person on Ravnica at some point. So, I, you know, I, I think it was not inspired by any one particular person as much as, like, what would a cool, young, you know, sort of dashing, but kind of crazy, is it mage look like? And, and Ralzarek's sort of the result of that. I really wish that Magic didn't have a dead is dead policy because I would love to see Urtai well, and Giant well, Ballad. Ac- actually, I was going to mention, like, Zach Hill just mentioned Urtai, so obviously he's coming back soon. That, that's yeah. obviously yeah. what we can come up with. It. To the salvations we go, boys. <laughs> <laughs> but see, it's interesting because you mentioned in your, when you were explaining it, how, like, it's a crazy lightning storm and he shoots lightning bolts, and that's actually an ability which. I don't know, I guess it never dawned on me that, like, three damage was lightning bolt. But I find that's, like, a really nice tie-in. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, it was explicitly supposed to be, like, there's lightning bolts in the art, and this guy shoots lightning bolts. (laughs) (laughs) A little Easter egg for, you know, really... Yeah. For anybody with eyes, will I'm now I'm now expecting all planeswalkers to have these Easter eggs. (laughs) (laughs) Is that cool? (laughs) So I really, really want to talk about Possibility Storm. Awesome. Because the first time I saw it, I'm like, okay, this is Wall of Text red card for the set. It's the one that goes into some guy who thinks he's funny's red commander deck just to annoy the entire table. Yeah, yeah. I, love, I love that guy. Like, those and games are just I, absolutely ridiculous. But I, Sometimes I am that guy. I have that deck. Okay. <laughs> I am the guy who has Echo Maged a uh, scramble verse on numerous occasions. Uh. Like... <laughs> I that like it. Uh, well, it's, some guys just want to watch the world burn. Yeah. <laughs> but Possibility Storm, when I actually read it, this card is good. Yeah, oh yeah. You can do some cool stuff with that card. Apart from the fact that having two of them means you know, buy one, get two free. Yeah, yeah. that's that one of the more powerful things you can do with this thing. You can also, like... Chain cheap planeswalkers into Karns, and then I mean, yeah, I like stacking your deck. There's some, there's some neat stuff you can do with that card. But it's, the fact that it, it feels it's so red because it hoses blue. Yeah. Like Counterspell Thomas Sphinx's Revelation for zero. Yep, exactly. It's your random. Your Ash Zealot could easily become like a, a Hellkite Tyrant or yeah. a, a Hellkite or whatever. Ah. It, like it, it just feels so red, and your deck. I, I can't remember whose article it was. I want to say it was V. Uh-huh. It might have been Randy Bueller, but let's face it, when it's those two are the possibilities, it's probably a good article. Yeah. 
who said that there's a there's an old theory that says there are no wrong threats, only wrong answers. I think that was Dave Press. Okay, not exactly a fall off from either of the previous. <laughs> no, no, yeah, exactly. So it, you know, if you're casting a deck full of threats and you cast, say, uh, Thunderbolt Hellkite and you flip Hellrider, I mean, sure, it's a it's a downgrade, but oh well. I'm sorry. Well, what's the name of that card? Hellrider. Thank you. No, um, that, that's totally true. And then, like, whereas if your opponent is, like, trying to, you know, oh, okay, I'm going to ultimate price your card up, well, that became a tragic slip, right? Oh, that became second hand or, or something. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those cards that, like, seems very goofy, but it actually has, like, pretty real implications. I mean, there, there are other cards like this, like Warp World, I think, or that card that was, like, um, my, my, uh, Mind Blaze or something where it's, like, you know, these... Worldfire? Yeah, um, no, no, it, it was like 5R deal 9 damage or something. Okay. Uh, out, uh, some old set. Or, um, oh, Searing Wind. No, 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 no. no it, it, it was, I think it was literally called Mind Blaze. I'm looking it up on Gatherer right now. <laughs> there was a Mind Moil. That that was a fun card. Which I used to kill with Niv Mizzet in a oh, yeah. EDH. <laughs> This card, it costs 5R. People know what I'm talking about. You can look it up on Gather. But you, you, in essence, had to name a card and then name how many copies of that card were in someone's deck. And if, <laughs> oh, if you yeah. were right, it dealt, like, 8 or 9 damage or something. I don't know. But it's yeah. like, in a card, like, at first you read it, and you're like, what? And then you, like, read it, and you're like, this is good. <sighs> I remember that was a that was a John Avon artwork. Yeah. He's got, the dude's got like fire in his mouth. Um, Champions. Yeah, it was Mind Blaze. And then there but, was that uh, yeah, Mind Moil or something. It was like four R that actually turned out to be a really good. Deal. So, I mean, like yeah. there's there's some you know they're never going to be just like put four of them in the deck. This is the nut high. But I, I think a lot of these re- like weird red effects actually like have a lot more play to them if you bother to think about like. Wait, what does this actually do? Which you know is, is sometimes easier to parse than other times. This is great. I, okay, uh, Travis, move on because I could just sit here and do this all night. <laughs> all right, uh, Obsidot's aid. Yeah. Another card I want to use omniscience with. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, Obsidot's aid was yet another one of those cards. Like, it's called Obsidot's aid, so it's in Ravnica, but it can really be in any set. Uh, yeah, we try to figure out, like, okay, black reanimates stuff. What would black-white do? It's like, oh, okay, well, maybe black-white could reanimate stuff that isn't a creature. Cool. What does reanimation usually cost? Well, like, it's really, really, really good at four mana. So around five mana, okay, let's test this out. And then, like, yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. You could do cool stuff with uh, omniscience, obviously. You could, you know, I mean, there's some expensive artifacts you can get some value on. Uh, again, you can get Karn in older formats, which is pretty sweet. Uh, yeah, nickel so Bolas is standard. Yeah, Nickel Bolas is standard, exactly, yeah. So, yeah, I think there's some really fun stuff you can do with that card. But it's still, you know, you have to work hard enough that it's not, like, totally bananas or anything. So, yeah, I think it's a card that will generate some cool stories. Yeah, it was one of the cards I definitely wanted to pick up as soon as I saw it. Like, yep. Apart from the fact it's going to look sweet in foil. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Little bit of a foil fan. Oh, really? <laughs> oh yeah, I love him. Oh, that's awesome, man. Do you like play? Do you play a lot of EDH? Uh, I used right. to. I don't yeah, play it as much for now. Oh yeah, come on, yeah. Yeah. get on, get on the corporate train. <laughs> uh, 
I'm transitioning more into cube now. I'm really starting to get into cube, and I'm building my own. So most of my commander foils are going into my cube. Oh, that's awesome. I've played a lot of cube draft, so I'm interested to yeah. take your thoughts on cube at some point. Absolutely. Uh, Will, what have you got for us? I've got... Okay, so there's no signets in the set, yes. much to everyone's dismay, and there's yes. clue stones. Now, yes. I get why... Because you've mentioned before, signets are too powerful. But could yeah. you just go in depth explaining why the signets were not reprinted? Yeah. Uh, okay. So like, and this is again one of those like, I've had, I've had this conversation on Twitter recently where it's like, these are not too powerful, and I'm like, well, these are too powerful, and then you you know like, just trust that I'm not acting in bad faith, and that everyone at Wizards Development is very 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 good at magic. Okay. So the, like. To understand why the signets are so good, look, for example, at one of the most powerful cards in the standard environment right now, which is Farseek. Farseek is incredibly good. It is, it is the backbone of a variety of different decks. Farseek, unless you are blowing it up, is worse in two very meaningful ways than a signet. It doesn't come into play untapped. Which, if you're casting it on turn two, doesn't matter. But if you're casting it on any other turn of the game, Signets, in essence, cost one mana, not two mana. And Farsi gets green. This means that green gets a core element of what green does in the color pie that's very important, which is color fixing and mana acceleration. Mana acceleration is a very important thing to monitor because it's a form of raw resource advantage, as we talked about. All forms of raw resource advantage, you have to work very, very actively to ensure they don't remain too good. So if you give signets to every single color, not only do you deprive green of one of its most powerful, defining attributes, and if you look at times when like really good colorless acceleration is legal, you'll see a disproportionate playing of green across standards history. You can look it up. You know, I mean, we've done this exercise. It holds true. Um, you also just give any deck that wants it an unlimited number of rampant draws. And that's just a very dangerous place to be. And people will tell me all the time that, like, you know, oh, okay, like, it's, it's not too powerful, but I promise you, and again, we saw this play out when it was legal, if you can have eight signets in your deck, like, it's really rough to be, like, on the draw with an aggro deck. Like, if I have four, if I can wrath of God when you've, like, dealt me two damage and played your second creature we're in a really bad shape. And people are like, oh, well, the aggro decks can get, like, really, really explosive draws, too. Well, yeah, but, like, a lot of the time, it's, like, a crazy combination of cards, not I cast my two-mana artifact. And then on top of all of that, when the signets are, like, really, really, really good, that means that blowing up signets becomes a lot better. And you see stuff like Viridian Shaman getting all over the King Street Hooligan, which is a thing... And then you get into, like, okay, you have really powerful raw resource advantage mana acceleration, and the way that I'm going to beat you is I'm going to blow up your lands. They're, like, not your lands, but your mana artifacts that do nothing but produce mana. And you get in this world where, like, you know, like, denying people the ability to cast their spells in the first place is, like, a thing that's really good and standard. And that's just a really bad environment to be in. So, like, taking all of that together... It's just very clear when you start to think about it that, like, signets are way more powerful than anything that you would release in standard in a number of different ways. 
And, like, again, a great example of that is, like, Sphere of the Suns was an extraordinarily playable card in a variety of different contexts and is essentially worse than a Signet in, like, two very meaningful ways. And even that was, like, a totally fine card. So, I mean, I, I think yeah. that, like, it's, it's really easy to, to understand once you take a step back and think about it dispassionately why you can't bring the Signets back. See, you say that, but all I hear is, I hate blue. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, what I hear is uh, Zach confirming that in Modern Masters, they're going to reprint the Signets with the alternate art from the MTGO cube. I had that, too. Sheer okay. You have figured right. it out. <laughs> <laughs> like, dude, you're NDA, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I'm revealing so many just totally plausible. See, I've revealed the Squirrels Matter theme. Um, I'm just revealing all kinds of very different things. Soon we're, we're going to hear a knock on the bar- background. Uh, and uh, <laughs> get the door. Some, some Matt, very Matt, gruff Matt, Russian Matt, accent. That tay bag. Oh my god, please don't say that again. You would crush the skull. But, uh, so, so, like, what you're saying raises another good point. Then, like, okay, well, well why clue stones? Like, they're, you know, really, really similar to the uh, the other cycle, the, the key repeat. The answer is that's intentional. I mean, they're similar except when they're different. Like, some decks want a card more than they want a 3-3 that you have to pay two mana for every turn. That's interesting. Um, also, we really like the gameplay of the key rooms in full Ravnica draft. So we wanted something that was similar to that. And, uh, you know, they're mainly in there for limited purposes. You can tell that because they're common instead of being uncommon. Um, they're subtly different in important ways. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're actually a little bit more geared court control decks than the key runes are, although it's debatable. And I mean, I think it's just a very interesting, very straightforward gameplay pattern. You know, and not every card is supposed to be defining the standard format. And these certainly yeah. don't do that. But I think they have their place, and I think they're good at what they do. So one of the cards that has caused a lot of people to open their eyes is Notion Thief. Yeah. Uh, and I've been wondering if maybe it points that Jace the Mind Sculptor is being reprinted in M14. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's that good against Jace. It is really good against Jace, and it's really good against uh, Brainstorm. I, the, the, the story behind Notion Thief is, I gave uh, a deck called Krogo to my friend Chase Childress in Tennessee States in, like, 2001. The deck was essentially a bad Psychotog deck. Uh, it was blue-green. It basically was mono-blue with, like, hops, four spikes, counterspells, memory laughs, uh, you know, all the factor fiction, all those good cards, um, and then Crosum Beast instead of Psychotog which was worse, but was still really good, and it was good enough to win the state championships in the hands of an 11-year-old. Um, in the sideboard of that deck was Plagiarize. There were a lot of pretty good card-drawing spells that people were playing, and there were very few things more satisfied than just getting them with a Plagiarize. So uh, I have a soft spot in my heart for really powerful, really swingy, but very narrow answers. Another card I really like, I mean, we'd never print it, but I really like it, is, like, Teferi's Response. I also like yeah. that uh, the red card's a counter-target blue instant draw a card next turn or whatever it's called. I, I like really narrow, really powerful answers. So Notion Thief was my really narrow, really powerful, but, like, you know, 
corner case answer to Sphinx's revelation, to Derek's ultimate, to, you know, I mean, even Brainstorm, if it's a card that you think, you know, you could ever play in Legacy, which, you know, probably not, but the worse it gets, this is the thing I like about this card, the worse that it gets and the more ridiculous it is to play, the fewer times people will play around it, which means the better it gets. Yeah. You know, expecting it. So I feel like Notion Deep is one of those cards that, like, people will play around it at first, and so it won't do anything. And then people are like, oh, it's bad. No one's going to play that card. And then you're going to be the guy that, like, draws 10 off your opponent's Sphinx's Revelation. And that'll feel really good. And, like, the only thing better than a plagiarize is a plagiarize that beats down for three. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, 3-1 Flash was, like, just good enough that, like, you know, you're disappointed if you don't get someone with it, but it's still, like, a relevant body that does stuff. Yeah. I mean, there are just the, the list of things I want to do with this. Like, Teferi's Puzzle Box is one yeah, of them. Yeah, or Reforge the Soul, or uh, Whispering, uh, Whispering Madness. Madness. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like you might have done some of this. <laughs> the World Atlas. But the fact that yeah. you confirmed that this is good against Jason Mind Sculptor and Brainstorm obviously means that they're actually both in M14. They actually are. Uh, that was a keen insight. Uh, <laughs> See, I don't get why people say that Zach hates blue. He's clearly... Yeah, he's, really, he's bringing back Jason Brainstorm. <laughs> yeah, Ancestral Recall, too. Brainstorm is uh, uncommon, and Ancestral Recall is rare. Um, because, as everyone knows, Wizards just makes rares better than uncommons to sell more packs. Obviously. Yeah. That's, Obviously. That's, yeah. Wow, if if that's rare, I really want to see what the mythic is in that. Uh, <laughs> it's Jace, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Come on, Will, aren't you listening? God. Yeah, yeah. Even, why, why do we have you on the show again? Oh, yeah, it's because you like polar bears. <laughs> we need more polar bears yes, in yes. When, when are the polar bears coming? <laughs> Theros, obviously. Yeah, no, the, they, second, they, they, the second they, set. The, the polar bears show up to eat all the squirrels. Um, yes, you were figured it oh. out. And the penguins come afterwards. Oh, uh, Chris Massioli will be happy. I'm okay with that. <laughs> so, Travis, I know you're a big fan of uh, Elmer the Planeswalker. Oh. Voice of Resurgence. Yes. Voice of Resurgence. Uh, Amara the messed up. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, uh, the, the two-mana card? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that one's nice. <laughs> that was I think it's overrated. Card. We're like we're sick of all these flash decks. Also, we're sick of the fact that green doesn't have answers to wrath that are inexpensive, and there's all these bonfires and museum borders and you know, all this stuff being thrown around. So, what can we make that is good against both of those things? And we made a car. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! Yeah. I. Definitely not this the is, most elegant design, but again, not every, you know, like, you make most of your cards intuitive and elegant and viscerally appealing so that when you need to, like, engineer the heck out of a card, like, uh, you know, the um, three-mana, three-three and gate crash, or uh, even a card like Ash Zealot that makes no sense out of context, you know, you get to do that every once in a while. I mean, that's one of the advantages of making really appealing, intuitive, drivable sets. So, Voice of Resurgence, very clearly a, a, a developed magic card, but hopefully one that'll, that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think Craig Wesco's already hit on the perfect name for it, Stag Tusk. The, uh, once every set, Travis picks out a card that he thinks is going to be 
the best card ever, and it's a fifty dollar mythic, and everybody should be playing it. And he's wrong. <laughs> that is not, that is a fall, fallacious statement. <laughs> oh, really? How's uh, how's Aurelius Fury doing there, uh, Travis? <laughs> I never said it was going to be a $50 Mythic. I just said I thought it was going to be one of the more defining cards in the format. Right, what's it defining right now? It's defining itself in my binder because it hasn't moved since I put it in there. It's showing up in block. <laughs> but I think this is your overrated card for the set. I think it's good. Oh, yeah. But I, it's, I don't know. I guess I have to play with it to see just how good it is because I think just people aren't going to cast spells on my turn unless they're going to kill it. Right. See, that, that, that's why I would have preferred had you just reprinted Seed Time, you know, just, just as a personal service to me. Just get them. <laughs> right, Seed Time and Summoner's, uh, not Summoner, was it Summoner's Trap? Yeah, Summoner's Trap, two of my favorite anti-blue cards ever. No, but like, come on, Seed Time is a green card that gives you an extra turn. What's not to Summoner's love? Trap rules. Yeah, Seed Time is definitely a card I'd like to get in there every once in a while, just to, like, keep people honest, but, you know... I, I hate blue, remember, so I don't want to be too <laughs> that. That's true. You can't be too obvious about yeah, it. See, yeah, see, Voice of Resurgent hates, hates on a bunch of stuff, but Seed Time only hates on blue. Only hates on blue. Exactly. Too obvious. <laughs> and Voice of Resurgence hates on Restoration Angel. Anyways, speaking of, by the way, I, I'm fascinated by how little conversation, the, what's the kind of quiescence or whatever, blue, blue, white counterspell silence them? Oh, Renda Silent? Yeah, yeah, Renda uh, That card is really good. I that's promise. ridiculous. Yeah, but I, mean, really I, I finished an article on Azorius today talking about how much I'm going to hate that card because the best, one of the best ways to fight blue is to tease out a, a bad spell and then play the one you want, and this just stops that cold. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It's good against precisely the kind of thing that counterspells are good against. So, Blue Mage is ever, I promise you, I gave you some love in this. I swear. Fingers crossed. Yeah, but see, most okay. people are going, oh, yeah, but Second Sunrise got banned, and Render Silence is only good against eggs, so I don't want to play this anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good against that, everything. That, yeah, only good against eggs. How is Let's Let's go off on a, on a short tangent here, since eggs has been mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I played that deck for months, and I loved it. Yeah. Was, was Face Reward you? Uh, Face Reward was, I think, the M13 team as a whole. I mean, it's, it's really hard to... It's really hard to say, like, who created a card. Um, sure. You know, most cards are made in meetings. There are a lot of people having to do with it. I mean, the, the thing that we learned about Face Reward is, and the reason it's there, is that, like, people really like to, like, not have their guys die. Right? It's like, like, it, it, like so when we rare pulled the set, Face Reward was, like, one of the eight most popular cards in the set amongst, wow. like, your average Magic player. Because, like, people like their stuff not to die. You know, and you're, like, looking at the card, you're like, oh, it's some bulk rare. But, like, it's a really, really popular card. Because, like, there's the level one use, which is like, oh, you didn't kill my guys, haha, which is awesome. And then once you play with it more, you realize there's all these really cool, interactive, shoddy uses to it that you didn't necessarily see at first, but that do a ton of really awesome things. So, to me, that's, like, exactly the kind of card that you want to print where, like, the level one is, like, appealing, it does what you want it to, but it's not all that powerful, and then the more you play with it, the more cool uses you discover for it. Like, that's exactly why people play Magic, is for that kind of learning experience. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of my favorite cards in the set, but I, I don't know exactly who the designer was. Okay, excellent. Well, I know you uh, you had one more card you wanted to talk about before we move on from Dragon's Maze. I do. 
Have you did you have you ever actually won with Mace's End? First question. Well, I won a game with Mace's End. Yeah. I have never I have never activated the Mace's End ability to win with Mace's End. Uh, I, I have won a game because Mazes End put me up three cards, and that's really good. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I, I've, I've not actually had ten games in play, activated the ability, and won the game then and there because of it. Have you that seen, have you seen someone else do it? I've, I've never seen it happen, although I, 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 I would bet any amount that Mons Johnson has won a game with that ability. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be trying for this in, in, in one of my articles for sure. It's it's just too much. Like Foreign Glaciers is yeah. one of my favorite cards from back in the day. Right. And the thing about this card is that like if you activated it once, it's really good. It's like a land that drew you a card. Yeah. So you know you don't have yeah. to work too hard to make this card very powerful. For sure. And I mean Thorin Glaciers like alliances. When you look back at it now, yeah. it's had so many good cards in it that people still play. Yeah, Alliances was not a weak set at all. Well, it couldn't be, considering Pope and Fall of Empire. card disadvantage uh, right there. <laughs> I'm down two cards for your one card. This must be bad, right? <laughs> but Alliances had both Pillage and Arcane Denial, which were drawn by the amazing Richard Kane Ferguson, so the set's automatically awesome. Uh, yeah, RKF is actually one of my favorite all-time artists. He is, he is great. I love that he came back in Time Spiral Block and did some things. Yeah, and he did some stuff in Shadowmoor as well, I think. Yeah. Oh, really? I didn't actually even realize that. Uh, there's like Everlasting Torment and a couple of other cards. Crit, oh, well, your I'll, favorite, Bat, Batwing Broom. Batwing Broom. I just picked a couple of those oh, up to fight. Broom, yes. Sweep them up. Well, I've, I've just, I just want to play against somebody with twin and they like make a million dudes I'm like okay are you going to scoop no or attack you for a million <laughs> oh uh, you're dead <laughs> seems fine yeah seems fine uh, okay so yeah, anything else you wanted to touch on Zach before we move away from Dragon's Maze like anything we didn't ask about or any well there's one card I wanted to mention before sure what, what's your card beck and call close yeah. of nature 2.0 yes that was uh, very intentional. It was like this card is sort of a split card. Also, you get to play, uh, you get to play, uh, yeah, glimpse of nature again in modern, but a little bit more balanced this time. I always have a soft spot in my hot, uh, spot in my heart for elves. My team designed um, the elf. You know, I mean, a lot of people had the elf deck. My team, Frank Karsten, Jan Guaz, Marine Lavera, and myself and Stuart Wright designed the mirror entity version of elves that ended up top-dating that Pro Tour and was sort of the fixture of that standard season. Um, so I always have a soft spot in my heart for the Elf deck, and we wanted to see, like, okay, can we do this effect at twice the mana cost and put a color restriction on it and see what can happen. So, I mean, I expect that card to be very good in modern. Um, you know, I, I think it's far more reasonable. I mean, a big thing about it is that it gets spell-snared, which is huge. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I look forward to seeing what people do with that. I also think, by the way, it could be a totally reasonable standard card. Oh, yeah, I've already put it in a couple token decks in standard. So then, confirm or deny, you yeah. wanted to play Elves in Modern, and since Glimpse was banned, you thought you'd sneak a fast one past uh, the DCI <laughs> and print this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, like, you'll be going to GP Portland with an Elves deck, right? <laughs> I didn't say I was good enough to play Elves anymore. Uh, <laughs> not a deck I want to play for 13, 14, 15, 16 rounds ever again in my life. By uh, day two of Pro Tour Berlin, I was like barely a sentient being. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, so I, I'm glad that rumor, but I liked the version of the world where I did sort of conspire to play Elves at the Pro Tour. So... <laughs> Uh, people can believe that if they want. I might show up at the tournament with elves just to confirm that we were correct. <laughs> well, you say you were worn out on day two. Like, on the Stanislav Sivka uh, Pro Tour Return to Ravnica scale, where were you? <laughs> I was somewhere between how exhausted Sivka was and how exhausted I was having to cover yet another edge snitch. <laughs> oh, man. I love you that could day. just F6 in the booth. <laughs> <laughs> the, th- the, the thing is with eggs like good players don't take forever to go off oh, the deck right but like that that's fine but if you look at like Proto Return to Ravnica right like the first day you know he's all like prepped and ready to go and the second day you know the hair is kind of disheveled the shirt's no longer butted and the third day there's no shirt anymore there's just a white t-shirt he oh, looks yeah. really beaten down yeah we went out after the Pro Tour and he, he had to like recuperate for a solid like three hours I mean this is a guy that can play the deck without even having to think too much about it I mean you know that's why he wasn't good then but yeah that, that yeah, that will wear you out, and you can definitely tell looking at him after that final match. Yeah, for sure. He looked he looked like he was just ready to collapse, <laughs> cut, cut, cuddle his trophy in his hotel room. Yeah. Which, let's face it, is something we'd all be like to be able to do. Not confirming, or I, I know you're a, an all ages, but it's very possible that a lot of uh, drinking of non-alcoholic beverages was done after of that trophy at the at the bar immediately afterwards. Yes, of course, not alcohol. See, I'm hot like, cocoa. <laughs> I've known Alex Hayne for many years now, so I, I've heard all the stories that go with that. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> yes, you know how that goes. So if we could just move on then to, to brewing, which is, after all, what we talk a lot about on this show, and I know something that's close to pretty much anybody in, in R&D's heart. M- moving from non-alcoholic beverages to brewing, yes. I, I'm telling you, I am a master of the segue. <laughs> I want to start with something that you said in the GP Atlantic City coverage. They interviewed you, and you were talking about sideboards. Yes. And your take on, on how to build a sideboard and how to sideboard is something I hadn't seen before in that context. Oh. Uh, so like, I don't know how many of our listeners would have read that. If you can just sort of give us a brief insight into it. Basically, your principle is that your sideboard is not... 15 cards I might use, it's the rest of my deck. No, that, that's exactly right. And, and I by no means want to take credit for this principle. I, I, I learned it from Brian Davis uh, all the way back in the late 90s to uh, Zvi, you know, Adrian Sullivan, Mike. I mean, you know, like a lot of, a lot of theorizing went into this ability, and it, it, or into, into this, this theory, not just, you know, oh, Zach had a good idea. But the idea... By is, Mike, you mean uh, Mike Flores, Mike I take Flores, it. yes. Uh, Friend of the show. Um, hey, what's up? Uh, the, 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 the idea is that you should not have, like, a deck of cards and then some other cards that you would like to put into that deck. And the reason is the majority of games you're playing are actually with your post-sideboarded configuration. So it's a misnomer to think of the deck that you're playing 
for essentially a third of the time. And mathematically, you are playing it a third of the time, even if those games don't actually happen. Uh, you can't think of that as your deck. Instead, what you want to do is present the... You want to present a 60-card deck that is the ideal 60 cards for as many possible games over the course of the tournament as you can. Right? And that makes sense. Like, don't think about deck or sideboard. Just think about showing up at a Magic tournament. Clearly, in any given game of Magic, you want to have the best deck that you can bring to the table. Now, the reason that sideboarding exists is... You can only, you know, you don't know exactly what the metagame is going to look like. So you bring, you know, you choose some cards that you're going to just have in your first game and then some other cards that you're not. But if you could theoretically, like, just choose 60 cards from everything that was available in the format every time, you would certainly do that, right? You wouldn't just say, oh, I've got my deck. I'm going to put in a couple of Graph Diggers cages, you know, you would tailor it as much as you possibly can. So anyway, you don't get to do that with all of the cards in the format. You get to do that with 75 cards. But the same principle applies. You want to think about every single matchup that you're likely to face in the format, and then you want to figure out the best 60 possible cards to present against them. And then you want to figure out you, you do that for every matchup that you're likely to be up against, and then you design your 60-card main deck and your 15-card sideboard to be able to do exactly that as much as you can, as often as you can. Does that make sense? It does. Yep. And uh, it's something I've been working on doing recently, and it's actually not easy. <laughs> no, no, it's very hard. I mean, it's very labor-intensive. But that's, you know, exactly why the good players win a lot. It's <laughs> because, you know, they do that and other people don't. Yeah, for sure. So being in R&D and, and having to build decks for things like yeah. the FFL, yeah. how important is it to be good at, at brewing decks and coming up with ideas completely off the beaten path? Okay, it's, it's, it's far and away the most, the most important thing. I mean, and again, I mentioned Mons Johnson earlier. He, he's an exceedingly valuable playtester, as is Steve Warner, uh, Two people that y'all probably haven't heard of, they don't get a lot of public exposure, but two veteran game designers at oh, that are... Mons Goblin Raiders, I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that same Mons, yeah. Um, they, yeah, they, they, uh, they, everyone who plays in the Future Future League, it's far more important to be able to, like, brew up new ideas and envision, like, powerful uses of atypical cards. Um, you know, because that's how you make sure you don't print something totally broken, and it's also just how you make sure to play with the most magic cards, so you can make sure that you have the most fun magic cards in the set that you can have. Um, and then once you sort of know how an environment works better, you get to the point where you're tuning and refining decks a lot more. But one of the reasons that a lot of people get a lot worse after being in magic, after being in wizards for a long time, is precisely that phenomenon. That like, because min-maxing and playing as hard as you can is not like heavily rewarded, um, you know, it's just not incentivized, it's less important. So you don't practice the skill of being on top of your game all the time, and, and concurrently, you, you know, you get a little worse. What, uh, what's your process for brewing? When you sit down to brew a deck, where do you start? I, that's a great question. 
Um, what I usually do, um, as a deck designer or as a, as a wizard's employee, I, I just look at the file and I see, oh, this is probably too good. Let me build a deck with it. Or this is, you know, like interesting. Let me build a deck with it. As a player, I don't do that at all. As a player, I do one of two things. Um, the first thing I do is I look at a format and I figure out what the format's doing, what I like to call the pillars of the format. So what is the slowest possible viable strategy? What is the fastest possible viable strategy? What is the mid-range strategy that is likely to beat both of those? And then what sort of non-interactive or combo strategy is powerful and yet viable in that environment? And then once I see what those poles of the format are, then I try to see, okay, is there any weakness that all of those decks aren't touching. And I don't really care as much about the specific environment as I do as what's possible in the format. Because, you know, it's not like the old days where 50% of the matchups you played were blue-green matchups. Like, the environment's reasonably diverse. And so I'll try to exploit a hole in the metagame. And that's, that's sort of most brews that I make are, oh, like, no one can beat a Blood Moon, or, like, no one can beat a Chalice of the Void. Um, the other thing I'll do, and I do this in formats like Legacy and Modern, is I just think of the most powerful possible thing that can happen, and then I do everything I can to make it work. You know? Uh, that, that's, yeah, that's what I've been doing with Modern recently, is I've been looking at cards that are stupidly powerful but aren't seeing play, like Disciple of the Vault and Trash for Treasure. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 exactly. Trash for Treasure lets you get a Sundering Titan on turn three. Right, yeah. Trash for Treasure through the Breach. Like, there's all these cards that are, yeah, like, the, the potential upside is huge. So then you have to figure out, like, okay, well, how can I make sure that upside happens as much as possible? Now, the, the deck yeah. I played at Pro Tour Hollywood, or sorry, sorry, Pro Tour Honolulu, was just like, well, Bloodbraid Elf is really good. It turns out we can essentially play eight Bloodbraid Elves with Cathari's creature, or whatever that card was, Cathari Remnant. Okay, what can we do in a deck that casts Bloodbraid Elf every turn? And then it turns out that, like, you can kill a guy every turn, or you can make your opponent discard two every turn. Like, that was just bananas. And then on top of that, you get to cast Cool to make them Nickel Balls. So that was an example of, like, a deck that just did the most powerful thing as much as possible. I made a modern deck recently uh, that Drew Levin made the finals in PTQ with. I scooped Luis Neiman the final, or into the top eight of PTQ with. Although, you see, I only got ninth on breakers. But it was basically just like every good card in modern uh, in the same deck. It was like Delver of Secrets, uh, Deathrite Shaman, Cryptic Command, Snapcaster Mage, Lightning Bolt, Thought Seize. Yeah, just like every really good card. You just like play them in the same deck, and it turns out they beat your opponent. So, <laughs> see, see, I, see, I gotta disagree. As a slightly rogue uh, oh, yeah. modern player, uh-huh. as and someone who plays Jund, because Jund is rogue now, uh, oh, yeah. you're 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 missing you're you're missing the Tarmogoyf. That is true. That is that is one of the that is the best card in the format that we are not playing, and uh, it's possible we should play that guy too. But it comes a different set. And that is like that's a that's actually a really good point. Like Mike Flores um, builds decks sometimes like. What are the ten most powerful cards in the format? Okay, like, how can I play as many of them as possible? Sometimes yeah. you'll be able to play seven of them. You don't always get to play all ten. And, like, it's not as though this always comes up with what the best deck is, but it usually comes up with a good deck. And if people aren't expecting it or the format's very fair, a lot of the times you just get by on how powerful your cards are alone. 
we've uh, we've had Mike on the show a couple of times, and he's he's spoken about that a lot. Oh, yeah. Uh, He's one of my favorite people to talk to about magic, just because he's so passionate about everything he believes. Of course, he's also he's also very down to earth. You know, no no hyperbole. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very humble too. Never uses hyperbole. No. I, I don't know. Did did he ever win like New York States or something? I don't think he's ever mentioned. Uh, no, he's never mentioned that before ever. Never mentioned getting ninth at nationals ever. Did he? Uh, does he design any notable decks for anybody? Like. Does he ever hang out with pros? I think you're confusing him with Adrian Sullivan. <laughs> ah, right. Adrian Sullivan, you know, I really want to like the way he plays Magic because he is a member of Team Lands in front, as all players should be. <laughs> but he's also a member of Team Upside Down. That is true. That, and it always has been. I, yeah, man. I love what's, Adrian. What's so Team Upside Down? He plays all he of his play- cards facing his opponent. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So technically his lands aren't in front. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, ah, uh, stop it. Stop it, Adrian. I can't look. Uh, I certainly will admit to having been very tilted about that in the past. Adrian is also notable for top 32 in a pro tour with four copies of Orkish Librarian after it was reprinted in Time Spiral. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, man. Mind you, I'm the guy who made it to English Nationals one year because I had a copy of Zap in my deck. Yeah! (laughs) And I now collect foil Zap. So the story behind it was I was sitting down for round one and I realized I had only 59 cards in my deck. and The judge was looking for my deck list. So you're like, well, quickly, I've got to find something. I just grabbed a red card and it ended up being Zap. Oh, forgot okay. to cite it out in game three of the finals for this uh, Nationals qualifier. Oh, my goodness. My opponent's on three life. I have, uh, like, I'm, I'm hellbent, and I'm dead on board. I've got, like, six man out. I draw my card for the turn, and it's zap. Uh-huh. I'm like, well, okay, mice. Cast zap. Oh, look. Shock you. Oh, GG. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I feel like your opponent was really happy. Uh, he was just like, wait, zap? Yeah, such justice. We got a reader, folks. But yeah, that was <laughs> the one and only time Zap was ever good. Yeah, also, it is kind of advantage. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably not tempo advantage. But yeah, like brewing is something I, is near and dear to all of our hearts. Uh, well, less so than the rest of us, I think. I think that's fair to say, eh? Well, well, I guess now, sort of, maybe. I mean, you did play Mono White Knights at one point. I did. That that was my deck. That destroyed Jund. Because I play, I played, I played White Knight, and I played um, what was Exemplar? Right, Exemplar. Yeah. Well, no, I basically played every single Knights, but just play going like White Knight against Jund. They were, they were like, yeah. um, what? What's going on here? Protection <laughs> for you. <Yeah. laughs> Putrid Leech doesn't look so good now, buddy. Eight two one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I top I top eighted provincials with that deck, and then after that I played mass polymorph blue white. Yeah. Now, well, I actually your Grixis Delva list, which uh, you were talking about for the Pro Tour, I actually played uh, Grixis at uh, Standard FNM last week. Dust Mantle series is actually really good yeah, right that now. That's insane. Sam Black got me hooked on a deck that was like black, blue, green out of Brazil with four Dust Mantle series in like gyre stages and stuff like that. Yeah, 
yeah, I, I, I think Gus Middle Seer is, is underappreciated. That card ends games in a hurry, man. Well, when you look at the fact that you've got Overload, you've got a lot of really good expels, I mean, like Rakdos Return, Bonfire, although Bonfire's not great because of the anti-synergy with the Miracles, sure, sure. but Magma Quake is underrated right now, I think. Yeah. Uh, so basically my deck was like 15 main deck removal spells, a whole bunch of X spells, Nighthawks, and Dust Mantle Seer. Yeah, so Seer is just dealing you zero damage. Right, and it's like, the, the nut of course is when you play against like a Travis Wu deck and they flip Omniscient. Exactly, that is... That is... <laughs> or, yeah, well I did get a, an Angel of Serenity off one guy. Yeah. That's about as good as it gets. Yeah, like the, the card is like a four-four flying sulfuric vortex, essentially, and like yeah. you know, that, that, that turns out to be pretty good. And games <laughs> And when you're drawing, like, they're, yes, they're drawing really powerful spells, but you're drawing is it charms and Demir charms and you know D- dread boars. So whatever they cast, you're just going, oh, that's nice, kill it. The Demir charm also pretty good synergy with this here. Surprisingly, and I used all three modes on it. I think it was the only. The only charm that I actually used all three modes in one match, like, is it charm? I never used the, the looting, for example. But the deck was a lot of fun. and uh, Powerful, too. So when can you actually start crushing Pro Tours again? So I can't go to the Pro Tour, we think, until after Huey, which wow. is the I have been told that I could theoretically go to Pro Tour... Uh, the third set in Pharaoh's block, because I haven't had anything to do with that, but that would mean that I went to, like, a Pro Tour and then didn't play again. So part of me wants to do that, uh, but, you know, <laughs> Pro Tour is a lot of work. Uh, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, I definitely have the itch, for sure. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm going to go, I think, to the, the World Magic Cup qualifier in uh, in Illinois or whatever in June. I mean, I, you know, I'd love to make the team. It'd be a great honor. Uh, but, you know, Magic's hard, and I don't get to play all of that much anymore. So I, it's not that I would ever consider myself modest on any axis. I, I, I'm, I'm very uh, realistic, I think, about my chances of getting back on anytime soon. But I love Magic, and I, I obviously would, would like to be able to be back as much as possible. But you can still play Grand Prix, is it? You can, still so play, can still play Grand Prix as long as they're not within 25 days of the release of a set that I worked on. So it's not that I can't play a Pro Tours. I just can't play in any event that comes out within 25 days, or any event that happens in 25 days of the release of a set that I worked on. And it turns out that all Pro Tours are like that. But uh, I can right. certainly, you know, I... I, I, I Tested a little bit with Team Star City games for the last event. Um, not not a lot, but a little. And, and yeah, and I could definitely go to GPs and Star City games events and things like that. So, you know, I, I would like to be able to do so if any are in the area. But I'm, I'm, I work a lot, so it's not always the most viable option. But, yeah, I mean, we try to play from time to time. Sweet. So what's the chances of uh, seeing you at GP Toronto in November? Pretty high, I'd say. Uh, Toronto's one of my favorite cities, and, uh, I mean, I, I like to I like to show these kids I've still got what I, I still have what it <laughs> There is a 100% Come out of retirement. I'll either be black-shirted and walking around looking important or <laughs> scrubbing out. Because I will scrub out. I've actually never played a GP. I've judged five. I've never played one. No, they're, they're a lot of fun. I mean, in Atlantic City, I mean, it was a great time. I mean... I showed up prepared for the event, which felt good. 
Uh, you know, and, and there's nothing like playing magic at the top of your game for 16 rounds. I mean, you you test your own limits. I mean, I, I, by round 13, I was exhausted, but it was a good kind of exhausted. It was like yeah. running a marathon exhausted. You know, and then there's, I mean, it's it's almost supernatural to have like 2,000 people in the room all playing magic together. I mean, it's incredible, you know? Oh, yeah. It, oh, yeah. It feels the same even when you're judging. But I remember watching uh, Atlantic City at home and, like, you were doing well and Zvi was at the top of the standings. I'm just like, w- did we get in a time machine? <laughs> <laughs> what I mean, and, and John's playing more now. We need to do as much as possible to get somehow get him versus Kai on camera at a pro tour. Oh, my goodness. Well, Kai's coming to some events, so... Uh... Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't rule the possibility out. I, certainly, John plays a lot. I'm on, I'm on John's draft mailing list. I, I think he's actually going to GP Portland too. So we'll see John in a rare Grand Prix appearance for a chance. Wow. Well, I mean, he went to Atlantic City, but that's because he could like walk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. it was in the but like John, John was on our show for episode twenty-five. Okay. Uh, he had he actually played Magic at the same store where I learned to play in England, which is why we were able to get him on the show. Oh, that's awesome! And uh, like he's so humble. Oh yeah, he's a great guy. And Rick, I, I, yeah, I was shocked. Yeah, and really intelligent outside of Magic too. Just a really, a really empathic dude. I have a lot of respect for him. I mean, yeah, all that needs to be said about John on a magic show has been said at some point. But uh, yeah, I mean he's he's a really awesome guy, and and yeah, you would not you would not know from his affect that he's you know the greatest magic player of all time. Yeah, he didn't even want to call himself that when we when we mentioned it. I mean, that's no disrespect to Kai. Kai might also be the greatest magic player of all time, but I. Yeah, and I, I, I know John better than I know Kai, so I'm just going to use uh, confirmation bias. <laughs> well, <laughs> Mike says it's not close. In fact, uh, there was a fair, fairly uh, famous quote of his where he compared every other Magic player to a, a caveman with a stone stick, and, and John was the USS Enterprise. <laughs> so, oh my God. I don't know about that. But, I mean, if, if you had... There's that Mike Flores not given to hyperbole again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you had second pick in an all-time magic draft, you wouldn't be sad no matter who you got. No, that is exactly right. So, like, with with the brewing, do you consider yourself to be a deck brewer, or are you more of a play-the-best-deck-and-tune-it kind of guy? I know at the moment it might seem like you're brewing a lot. Yeah, uh, I mean, it it definitely depends on, like, when I'm playing. Um, If I think that I'm one of the best players in the room in a format I'm comfortable with and, like, extended legacy or formats I tend to be comfortable with, I'm usually going to play just, like, something good. If I don't think that I have a a gameplay edge, I'm much more likely to brew stuff. I mean, it also just depends on how good my homebrew is. Like, there are times, like, I I showed up to a PTQ with Trinity Green when, like, if you looked at this was in, like, 2005 or something. But if you look at, I loved that you know, deck. Yeah, that deck ruled. And, like, it was not possible to lose against anything. Like, everyone nope. was playing 20 to 25 one-mana skulls. So I'm just going to show up with the four Chalice of the Void deck and, you know, win a blue apple. I mean, you know, like, there are times when, like, everyone hands it to you. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but most of the time, I think, if, if I feel like I'm one of the five best players in the room or something, I'll just play a regular deck and tune it. If I'm at a pro tour, 
Um, if I'm at a Grand Prix, I'm gonna try to get an edge by like playing something that's probably not all that popular. Yeah, for sure. Because I I brew, but I don't. Well, I play mostly F and M because oh, I, I live in fairly isolated area. If I'm at F I'm absolutely bringing a homebrew. I don't want to be that bad. Oh, yeah. Playing Chunk Reanimator at F and M's. Hey, <laughs> did, did you go to F and M's? Uh, I I've been to one. Um, I'd like to go to more of them, but I, again, I mean, it, like I work until nine at night or something, and usually on a Friday, I'm, I'm just not in the mood to play Magic. Um, also, I, I travel a lot for various reasons, so it's hard to do. But I mean, yeah, like, like I, if I'm out of work early, I'd, I'd love to hit up an F and M, do a draft or something. But I, I think I've only been to like one since I've done that. I think people with no names in the community going to F and M is awesome for a local community. Oh, because I mean, yeah, and, and it's and like I want to, I totally agree, and it's also awesome. For me, like, I've met, the one time I went out to 20-sided games in Brooklyn, I met some of the most amazing people. There were, like, I mean, I ended up going to a diner and hanging out with uh, this guy, Stefano, for until, like, 2 in the morning. And then, like, I met another guy who was, like, a film editor, like, really talented, amazing guy, and we talked forever. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's it's cool to be able to be like a magic personality, just like meeting people that love magic and love to play magic. I mean, it's also great from my perspective, just getting to meet tons of awesome people that I'd never meet otherwise. So I mean, I definitely think it's a win-win. Yeah, for sure. Like if I lived in New York or even in Denver now, knowing that I could show up at F and M and end up paired against like a Pat Chapin or your, oh. your, yourself or BDM on round one, I mean, <laughs> I'd never miss a week. Oh, dude, yeah. And then I encourage other pros to show up to F&M when they can. I mean, again, yeah, it's, like, super fun. You know, like, you'll you'll get to play, like, a different type of magic than what you're accustomed to. And, uh, yeah, you'll probably make somebody's day. So. Well, we almost con- convinced Brad Nelson to show up in a mask to random F&Ms. What? And just unveiled himself at the end. That is insane. Dude, did he say he was down for that? He 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 would he was considering it, but I think now that he's qualified for this pro tour and he's close to gold, I think he's sort of rededicating himself again to serious play. Awesome. I mean, Brad is one of my favorite people in the entire community. He's a really good friend of mine. Oh yeah. I mean, he, he's he's one of the best players on earth when he's really dedicating himself to winning games and magic. He's been on our show a couple of times, and he fit right in with us. Oh, he's, I bet, man. He's he's a great player, but he also has that that Johnny Timmy streak that we all have that he just loves having fun with Magic. Oh, man. Yeah, exactly. You can tell that in the kind of decks he plays. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, there it is. Like, come on. Well, that's that's why I do what I do at FNM. I mean, I love the fact that when I play against some of the better players locally, and they sit down against me on a Friday night, they go, I have no idea what you're playing, so I'm just going to counter everything I don't understand why you're playing. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I love that. Like They know when they sit down against me that it's going to be a deck that has been thought out, that is fun as heck, and that they're going to have to think to beat. Yeah. They'll probably beat me anyway. No, and, and that's like a real... like That is an undervalue. I mean, talk about brewing. Like, it is... It cannot be underestimated how valuable your opponent not knowing how to play around your deck is. When I was working with, with Star City, Zvi had this deck that was like Vance Delver with, like, two Rootborn defenses or something. And there's, like, all these crazy one-off cards. 
And, like, the deck ended up not being that awesome, but the thing that we noticed was, like, the first two times you played against the deck, it would just dismantle you. Because yep. you, like, had no idea what to play around. I'm like, yeah, later on, okay, whatever, like, you'd stabilize because you'd understand it, but if you're, like, showing up to a Pro Tour, to an FNM with a deck like that, your opponent only has three matches to adapt to what's going on. So, yeah. you know, I, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's both overvalued in that people will play bad decks because they're like, oh, it's surprising, and undervalued in that people, you know, I, I think it's, it's very useful to throw in one or two copies of, like, a card that's really devastating if your opponent doesn't know it's coming, and it, just to make sure that your opponent doesn't have perfect information all the time. I remember I, the last time this really happened was when I played a, an Esper combo deck around uh, Exquisite Blood and Viscopa Guildmage. Oh, yeah. And everybody saw the Esper start, and they figured it was just Esper control, so they're holding their threats and trying to do the two-in-a-turn thing. Meanwhile, I don't have a single counterspell in the deck. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> thank you for all of this time. Oh, my God. But, just, like, slam the enchantment and activate and then tap Chalice of Life and kill them. Oh, yeah. Oh, my like, God. What even just happened? Like, oh, I see. I just won the game. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. What a, that is a sick combo, man. Uh, well, you probably had half to do, some, something to do with half of it. So I, I, I made Chalice of Life. I, I actually designed oh. all the flip cards that, flipped, that that weren't creatures. I think I designed, like, all but one of those or whatever in a, in a detailed design meeting. Chalice of Life being one of my favorites. I love that card so much. Yeah, I've used it quite a bit too. It's it's just such a beating and when it flips. And when I first started playing it, I was metamorphing it after it flipped. Oh yeah. So it's like it's, yeah, that's a flip that's it. A can you? Life, oh, it's like that. That's just so much. Oh, dude. Frag what? I don't even care. Five you. <laughs> yeah. By the way, good luck interacting with us because uh, you're not going to be able. To. Oh, so good. All right, let's uh, let's transition away. We've uh, monopolized a lot of your magic time, so let's move on to a fabulous segment of random moments of geekery. Will, do you have one for us? I do. Uh, This... All right. (laughs) This is a picture... Well, I guess it's a picture. I guess you can call it something else. Uh, Of... As a fan of the Big Bang Theory, it has it's a picture of every single shirt that Sheldon has ever worn on the Big Bang Theory. Oh my goodness! Broken down by season. Uh, broken down by season okay. and episode. So it's just straight so, chronological. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I love that it's, show. I know people don't like it because it has a laugh track and that, but oh, see, I don't care. It's you know. Sit down, watch it. It's fun, and there's uh, there's times where you know I see a shirt and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool, you know, but just kind of forget about it afterwards. Well, now you have the entire. I think it goes up to season six, episode seven. So all plan, all episodes. Uh, Travis, you've got one. Yes, someone on the glorious internet has taken uh, the My Little Pony and instead made My Little Cthulhu. <laughs> so instead of friendship is magic, we have friendship is madness. Oh dear. Yeah, I can see that being fun. Funny Cthulhu thing. Yep. That was awesome. I saw it on Facebook. It was like the first time I wanted to like repost something and like. 
Yeah, the people have way too much time on their hands. Hey, there's so much creativity in this world that just needs an outlet, and that's what Facebook is for. I uh, my moment of geekery is Fringe. Uh, I have been watching the heck out of it. Uh, about time. Well, you know, there was a time when if I was at home, if I wasn't podcasting about magic or writing about magic, I was got goldfishing magic decks. So <laughs> my time was exclusively magic. But I'm watching TV now, and Fringe is yeah, Fringe is really good. Um, Don't spoil anything. Of, uh, it's sort of like a cross between the X-Files and Doctor Who? Yeah, that was the best geek pitch I've heard in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Anna Torv is, uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's pretty cute. So, Zach, what have you got for a moment of geekery? I don't know, man, you stole the airway, you stole the, the friendship is madness thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was, like, slow rolling that. No, I am I don't know. I work a lot, and I, I've never been a, 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 a scion of geek culture, I suppose. I mean, in, in as much as working at a fantasy card gaming company for three years is somehow not a part of geek culture. But I think I've used up all of my geek points on on that career choice. So I'm, I'm woefully oblivious, uh, as you saw when we tracked to uh, too many geek-related things right now. I'll have to come back on and have a, a great moment for you guys. Oh, okay, then. I guess we could handle having you on again. Oh, fine. So, <laughs> if you insist. I, so before... Oh, really, yeah. I, I, you're really doing me a favor. Before we wrap up the show, I have a few quick-fire questions that some of my local players uh, wanted to ask. All right. I, I can be quick. How quick is quick? Five seconds? Uh, quick. Up to you. Uh, question number one from, round. Uh, from my friend uh, Chris Doyles, who's been streaming Legacy on Twitch and getting like 150 viewers at a time. Uh, why did you think Burning Tree Emissary was a good idea? Because uh, I think uh, it's really fun and good aggro decks that are beatable aggro decks, I think, are also fun. Uh, my friend Mark, who might be your biggest fan on the planet. Oh, my God. I love you, Mark said, does he have to practice making his voice sound so dreamy, or does it just happen naturally, as if emanating from heaven itself? Uh, it is precisely because I love the sound of my own voice a lot and that it sounds so dreamy and magical. No one listens to themselves talk quite as much as I do, and I wouldn't want it to be unpleasant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. My buddy Sugar Shane wants to know why you haven't reprinted Lightning Bolt yet. Uh, I want to know why he's called Sugar Shane. That name rules. Uh, Lightning <laughs> Bolt bends the format around it. It's one of the most powerful cards you can print. I think it's a good thing to bring back every, you know, decade or so. But it's, you know, it's very hard to print other good burn spells, which you need to do in every set when Lightning Bolt's legal. And Andrew, who is one of the two twins who started playing with Averson Restored and both top-aided Provincials last year, which is... Uh, unbelievable. They're 16. They, these guys are like prodigies. Jeez, man. Uh, there's a funny story. This guy playing cube, he had a sneak attack on turn two. Uh-huh. He activated it to put a Gaia's Revenge into play. Hey, yeah. And then passed the turn. <laughs> so he wants you to contact your friends at Wizards and make sure that if a creature gains haste from sneak attack and already has haste, that it actually loses it so that he didn't misplay at all. 
<laughs> I'll make sure to remember that for the next time we reprint Sneak Attack. <laughs> which which emergency totally errata? You heard it here first. Sneak Attack M14. Wow. Can you imagine sneaking in those godlike squirrels from Theros? Man, this is going to be awesome. Yeah, so be still my heart. <laughs> determine that Theros, the first set is uh, Squirrel Tribal, the second set is Polar Bear Tribal, the third set is Penguin Tribal, and all the art is Richard Kane Ferguson. <laughs> and Brainstorm, Jace, and Sneak Attacker in M14. Yeah. yeah. Just as I'm glad you summarized that. Uh, actually, actually yeah. Ancestral's in uh, M14 as well. Oh, that's right. I forgot Ancestral, Grant. Strict upgrade to Brainstorm. I don't know, man. <laughs> Brainstorm lets you shuffle stuff away. There you go. Protects you okay. Awesome. Thanks for the lightning round. So let's do some quick shout-outs, and uh, since it is now midnight in my part of the world. Yeah, I love magic. <laughs> <laughs> so, Will, I'm sure you have some shout-outs. I just... Well, actually, thank you very much, Zach, for coming on. It's been a blast. Yeah, uh, thank but you. I, it's been a fun I, I have one uh, for a sad shout-out, but to uh, Quentin Hoover, who passed away, who, if... I'd say the most famous art that he's done, at least to me and one of my favorite, is the original Wrath of God art. That's a good one. And and Quentin, I mean, brought an extraordinarily distinct visual style to magic that I think set the tone for... Not only was he one of Magic's great artists, I think he set the tone for a lot of other really great, very distinctive artists, and, and really made the game stylistically a lot of what it's become today. So, yeah, really, really unfortunate. Yeah, for sure. It's a very sad loss, and uh, sad to see him go. Uh, Travis, do you have any shout-outs? He says, asking you to follow that. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, Shout-out to Zach for joining us. Unlike my other castmates, I've actually got to play against you a couple of times. Uh, Shout out to Durfington on Twitter. He is working on my new avatar, which I hope to have soon, and it will be awesome and squirrel-themed still. Shout out to Ricky O'Chak and the amazing Chris on Twitter, and shout out to Team Gers. Especially Kirk Dubay, who has been designing a blue-green deck for me to play in standard. Queen Dryad and Spell Rupture is awesome. Yes, Great combo. I want to give a shout-out to Face-to-Face Games, uh, who have some amazing pre-order prices up for all the Dragon's Maze stuff. Uh, really good deals I've been able to get from those guys. They've been uh, working with us for a good while now, and they take good care of us. So if you need good, cheap singles and good shipping, certainly check out face2facegames.com and uh, let them know that Horde of Notion sent you. That, uh, that just helps us out a little bit. Uh, I want to give a thank you again, Zach. I want to echo what everyone else has said. This has been a blast. Like we've done a lot of podcasts with a lot of people, but this is probably my favorite ever. Dude, thank you so much. That's awesome, man. And uh, see, now you can yeah. say that you're officially better than Finkel. <laughs> That'd be the one and only circumstance. Well, next time you see Mike, because I think this will probably make him message me and ask to come back on, because that's sure what happened with. With Brad. You're going to get us penduluming back and forth. <laughs> right? Just, you can just tell Mike that we said you were better than him. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is like Batman Begins where you start the War of Escalation, Chris. I just, I, this might erupt, and, you know, you cannot control the monster you're creating. What's the <laughs> I, I love Mike Flores. Like, he, the guy has helped me 
in magic terms and in personal terms, like his uh, official Miser's Guide was a great listen, and I know a lot of people had a lot of bad things to say about it, but it worked for me. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I love the guy, and if I can ever get anywhere near New York City, I'm dying to meet him. And I would love uh, if if you make it in the city, definitely give me a holler. Absolutely, I mean, there's so many of you guys out there, as you and, and Mike and uh, BDM. I mean, even even if I could ever get anywhere near a Finkel draft, I <laughs> think I could probably die a happy man at that yep. point. Uh, and I also want to give a shout out to uh, Estrus, who does the Deck Tease podcast. If you guys aren't listening to that, you are doing it wrong. She's probably one of the best interviewers in podcasting right now. Really? Oh, yeah, she's really good. She did an interview with uh, Mike Robles this week. Oh, cool. She's had uh, all sorts of people on from all walks of the magic community. Uh, she'll, she'll basically interview anyone and make you want to listen. She is really, really good. Awesome. So you can check that out over on, uh, on MTG Cast, I believe. And, uh, yeah, Zach, did you have anybody you wanted to, uh, to shout out or say hi to? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, several people. Um, first is, uh, just literally everyone listening to this, which sounds super cheesy, but I, you know, I've, I've taken a few digs at internet magic people. Uh, I know they're gonna take more than a few digs at me, but, I mean, you know, the reason that we all did, you know, worked so hard to make the game that we all love for, you know, years and years and years, is because there's no better feeling than watching people play something that they love and that you've created and that you've shared in an experience together to make better. And, uh, you know, we, we really do, you know, do this for everybody that we've ever met at an event and played against or everyone that's ever sent us a word of encouragement or everyone that, you know, has never acknowledged the fact that we exist at all but has sat in their house and played games with their, you know, their dad or their son or their friends or their brothers or, or people that they've grown to know over years and years and years. And that's, it's, it's an honor and a beautiful experience to be such a meaningful part of so many people's lives. And I want to say that, you know, no matter who I take a dig at or whatever, I, I value, appreciate, and, uh, and really am humbled by that opportunity. Um, the second person I want to give a shout-out to is Renica Renault who is a future fellow who's, um, and I'll talk about that in a second, who's Project Flutter, which is a nationwide campaign to connect people that have lost something dear to them, launched today. Um, you may, I was just at her event right before this, um, you may be wondering what the future project is. That is what I do now after Wizards of the Coast. Uh, you can check us out at www.thefutureproject.org. We basically believe there's a crisis of engagement in America's schools, and we believe that a passion-based education, not only curriculum but program, is the key toward connecting people with their lives and building you know, real tangible skills that they'll take with them forever. And we believe in basically unlocking people's dreams and then showing them how to make them real. So check us out at thefutureproject.org and uh, definitely either send me an email or leave us a little bit of a donation if you're uh, feeling generous and want to contribute to the future of education in America. So You, those you mentioned shots. that project, and that makes me remember one of the things I wanted to say when introducing you was that you'd gone from most people's dream job to a job creating dreams, which would have been just, just like awesome. And that moment is now lost forever, and I've let the world down, and I will now Harry Curie immediately. Well, no, you do get to edit this, Chris. Just say it at the end and put it in. <laughs> I will make sure to steal that line. That is a good one. <laughs> I, sometimes I come up with those. Not often. Uh, more often than I come up with good decks. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
All right, awesome. Thanks so much for this, Zach. It's been uh, it's been great chatting with you, and I'm sure we would love to have you on anytime you're sitting at home bored. Awesome, man. Well, uh, I'll get in touch with you via Twitter. I hear that's what the kids use nowadays. Uh, I am occasionally involved in the Twitter machine. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Perfect. So on that note, Let's wrap this baby up. So, for Will, for Travis, for extra special guest Zach Hill, and for me, Chris, join us again next time for another exciting episode of Horde of Notions. Hell,